Justin, introduce the episode. All right, give me a second. Um, so he doesn't have a beverage. I just have the remnants of this this coffee. I drank it. I all. have oh. morning. What did you say, Steve? Gary's attic shirt I can use as a microphone. <laughs> He's never gonna wear that. <laughs> yeah, no shit, it's in my house. <laughs> he wears the same flannel and plain white t-shirt every day. It's true. Yeah, come to think of it, I don't think I've ever seen him wear anything else. Yeah. All right, so uh, here we are, the second episode of Two Beats Off Podcast. I'm Justin. Full-time co-host Steven is here, and uh, part-time potential recurring co-host MC is here, too. Say hi, MC. What's up, guys? How you doing? Never better. Never better. <laughs> I, I was going to throw a how are you now, but that was done last time. Yeah, yeah it, didn't, it didn't turn out well either, because I did it over top of Justin. <laughs> <laughs> That's how they do it in the show, so... <laughs> it yeah, you're, really well. you're just McMurray, Stephen. Yeah. Oh, you know. I can't do McMurray. I won't try. We're on our second watch through of that show. Um, John Carpenter Fest. Oh, yeah. I did that yesterday instead of the Super Bowl. What did you guys do for your Super Bowl? I worked until 730 and then I came home and put the game on in the background while I ate Chinese food. Ooh. I could go yeah. for Chinese food. I, uh, well, I struggled to get Ender and Ellie to sleep up until the end of the halftime show, which I did watch just recently. Is that why it was hard to get the kids to sleep? They wanted to see the halftime show? No, no. Ellie was just being a little shit. Um, then I watched the second half and then went to bed. It wasn't, you know. I, the halftime show was at least entertaining because all I kept thinking was like, how many people are going to be upset because they spoke Spanish a couple times? Oh, yeah. I heard it at work all day today. Jennifer was very upset about it. All I saw was the gifts. I saw the gif of the butts and then yes. the gif, the gif of, Sh- yeah, the Shakira tongue thing. Yeah. That, that's that's the whole show. That's the whole halftime show? Personally, I was really upset that J-Lo didn't bring in Ja Rule for I'm Real. Yeah. Felt let down. On Twitter, the trending topic was like Super Bowl thing, and you know how shows celebrities that tweeted about the super bowl halftime show yeah the, the singer of twisted sister had this tweet and i'm pretty sure it was in all caps about how acdc should be playing the super bowl because they're putting out a new record they're putting out a new record according to d snyder singer of twisted sister they are do you think he runs his own twitter yes oh, maybe that's impressive is it d snyder definitely runs his own twitter how much social currency do you think uh twisted sister still has to into it yeah in 2020 do they tour still like zero yeah that's why i thought i mean they used their one of their songs in one of their shitty commercials for the super bowl and he uh he used to have that um radio show that i don't think it was specifically for 93.5 classic rock that really rocks but they played it on there the d snyder's house 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 of hair house of hair yeah the hair metal show yeah, I'm sure he recorded it and then sold it to a whole bunch of radio stations. But Yeah, it, like, he, he does that like the uh, Alice Cooper radio show. Yeah. Oh, that's a good segue, speaking of Alice Cooper. He was in one of the movies I saw yesterday. So instead of the Super Bowl, I went and saw uh, a John Carpenter triple feature at the Blob movie theater in Phoenixville. And uh, Alice Cooper is in Prince of Darkness. He's like this weird homeless guy that stabs another guy with a bicycle. I feel you could explain what the Blob like theater is, because no one's going to know. Oh, okay. Well, 
There's a movie called The Blob from the 50s, and in it, The Blob attacks a movie theater, and that movie theater is in Phoenixville, Pennsylvania, and they regularly have vintage uh, horror movie festivals and Blob Fest over the summer and things like that. I didn't I didn't know that, so... You didn't know that? Oh, it's awesome. No. Friday, I think we're going back to see Chopping Mall. Nice. <laughs> I know that the... Uh, oh, what zombie movie was it? Was in Monroeville? Night of the Living Dead. Yeah, and Dawn, and Dawn of the Dead. That's where the mall is. Yeah. Where's Monroeville? Out near Pittsburgh. Oh, okay. Monroeville is to Pittsburgh what Hanover is to York. Oh, oh God. <laughs> so I shouldn't really worry about going there. <laughs> I mean, there's a bunch of cool zombie shit. Yeah. There's a, there's a museum. So I, it's better than Hanover. <laughs> There's no zombie shit here. Well, we have that underwater town. Yeah, that's pretty cool. About it. Oh, well, Three Hogs is good. MC went there. He didn't invite me. What is Three Hogs? Oh, it's a great barbecue place. I, uh, was, working. I was working. I figured. Yeah. I still have your location on, on my phone for some reason, so I knew. Why are you guys, tra- why are you guys tracking each other? I don't know. I don't know why his location was ever turned on, but I noticed that the other day. I was like, hey, that's me. Oh, God. <laughs> because that's what friends do. Oh, you've never asked me for my location. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> Sorry, Justin. MC, how's that show? Uh, what was it, Saturday? Oh, up at JB's? It was good. Yeah. All the shows there do really well. Um, it's just a great spot to have shows and like they're great to the musicians and it's a fun spot. And I get to eat their delicious fucking cheeseburgers every time I'm there. Did we fight or was that another place? Um, A-bag. I'm thinking of A-bag. Yeah, A-bag. We did that. We're playing there next month on March 7th. Yeah, okay. That's what I'm moving up. Good to know, Stephen. Well done. Glad you have that in your calendar, drummer. <laughs> I actually do have it in my calendar. Thank you very much. March 7th. Just making sure. Yep, it's in there. I have a ridiculous list on my phone of all the shows that I have agreed to for some reason. And right now it's reasonable. I feel like in two months it's going to get really out of hand. When's that Strike Anywhere show? Dude, I'm hoping this fall. I really want to make that happen. Yeah. Oh, I thought... All right, well, this you can cut this. Steven, you sent me a screen cap of the event for Strike Anywhere at the garage. Excuse me? Yeah, I, have, I have a screen cap that Steven sent me. Surprise, cause, MC! Because <laughs> I, was, I was all upset. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. I was all upset because Lucero was playing the communion club that day, and I didn't want to have to choose. No, no, that's in Maryland. That's in Baltimore. Oh, you dipshit. I thought it said, oh, maybe it probably says, like, Skid Row Garage is attending. Yeah, it probably had, because I'm going. I bought tickets. Oh, okay. <laughs> I thought... You thought Strike Anywhere was playing the garage, and you weren't sure if you were going to go to <laughs> Zero or not? At the Chameleon, especially. I know, but I... That's, like, a no-brainer. You I know it. Anywhere. I know it is. God. You're way too alt-country now. Am I? I'm yeah. looking for it, and I'm scrolling back in the multimedia messages you sent me, Stephen, and I just have a bunch of memes that say, uh, 
Listen, if he does not rub your rolls, kiss your stomach, punch your booty, and get turned on by your curves, he's not the one. <laughs> yeah, this just says MC is interested, and he sent it to me, and I thought it was the Skid Row show. Strike anywhere, praise, no man in mercy union. Yeah. Womp womp. Fuck that one up. Yeah, I did. Do you guys remember that website that Chris made about Fat Matt way back in the day? It was like Fat Matt is a bitch, and it was just terribly photoshopped <laughs> pictures of Fat Matt doing stuff with like yes. a, like a terrible thing across the bottom. Like Fat Matt sits like a girl and runs down to pee, and it was Fat Matt's fa- face photoshopped on a girl like covering her crotch on a toilet. Sit, you should you said sits like a girl and runs down to pee. Oh whatever, you know what I meant. You guys got it. <laughs> I was trying. I almost said shits like a girl, and I realized that like that wasn't right. I think yeah. at that time I didn't even know who Fat Matt was. <laughs> it was like an angel fire site. Yeah, I do remember it though. I was joking with Chris recently that like that happened in like 2005 or something. I was like, dude, I think you invented memes before memes <laughs> were memes, and it was all because we were, like Fat Matt thought we had an internet conspiracy against him. Bring that up when we interview him at, on Saturday. It's like, so I heard you invented memes. <laughs> Do you guys remember what the first meme was you ever saw? Oh, never mind. Yeah. I thought thought that'd be good content. I suppose what not. The, what was the piano playing cat? Is that like a the one in space or whatever? Oh, piano cat. Piano cat. That's kind of more of just like a video. Yeah. So how was playing that attic show, guys? You guys both told me that the addicts were really good in 2020, which I didn't expect. Yeah, they were very, very polished. Like, yeah, they're they're professional musicians. You can tell that they aren't just like out there having a good time that like they want to go out and sound perfect. And they do. Yeah. And like on top of sounding perfect, pull off really ridiculous shit on stage. Yeah. Like Monkey still does the whole big stage show with the cape and the costumes and throwing shit in the cat crowd and confetti and it's a good time sam miller got kicked out there's some drama <laughs> oh really somehow yeah. he got in a fight at an attic show on a wednesday night i think he tried to punch an old guy and the bouncers kicked him out is that what happened i'm not sure he i didn't see it he probably doesn't have the internet it's a tough life being a model in new york is he a model in new york oh yeah he's a model like yeah. That's like what he's doing to earn an income. Oh, that's why he has to borrow money to get into shows. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Holy shit. So, oh, you guys probably you said you didn't watch the Super Bowl. So, I watched the Rudders. Yeah, then you probably saw it. The Rudders commercial. Yeah, with the like the like video game thing. Yeah, but Roberitos did that like two years ago. Yeah, I know. It's like they stole that shit. Yeah, and it's another local company from based in York. Yeah, they had to have stolen that. Yeah. I mean, it was too similar not to have. If you're hearing this right now, Rudders, we fucking see you. <laughs> Did you guys see the Groundhog Day Bill Murray commercial? Yeah, that was my favorite. It was pretty cool. Someone that thought... was, in yeah. fact, Groundhog Day. Yeah. What mayor got bit in the face by the Groundhog? A real one? Yeah, some mayor got bit in the face by a groundhog. Well, presumably the mayor of Punxsutawney. Yeah, but a lot of towns in Pennsylvania have groundhogs that they yank out of a box. My uh, grandpa is the weatherman for the Grunzhau Lodge 17 in Myerstown. 
So they don't have like a live groundhog. They have a taxidermied stuffed one. Oh, that's that they, so much smarter. Yeah, he's holding a little American flag. And this year they rubber banded a cell phone to his paw because he's got modernized. And they <laughs> they clamp his stand to a small boat and they float it down the Tulpahawken River. Oh, I saw a video of that. Yeah, and then they put it, I think Lois posted it. And then they put the groundhog on a menorah spreader because the entire story is bullshit. And then they do the whole thing in Pennsylvania Dutch. It's pretty cool. It's so pretty I, cool. I don't mean to like, I don't know. You might be upset by this, Justin. Okay. Uh, well, the groundhog that bit a mayor's ear was in Sun Prairie, Wisconsin. Oh. Doesn't sound very Pennsylvania Dutch, does it? Right. No. Well, to be fair, I'm pretty sure like the movie Groundhog Day that supposedly took place in Punxsutawney was filmed in like Iowa or Idaho or Illinois, one of those I states that drive through to get to the West Coast. Yeah, I don't think it was actually filmed in Pennsylvania. No, it definitely was not. Because I, Punxsutawney, like where they actually go to look, get the groundhog, like Gobbler's Knob, is not in town. Like people, I think, have to take buses out to it. Oh, really? Yeah, well, they would take buses because everyone's just hammered the whole time. Yeah, I, I think about going every now and then because i've heard that uh not every now and then but you know i mean i occasionally consider once a year around the beginning of february (laughs) yeah i consider going because i've heard it's pretty wild hey the the headline for the the groundhog bite is (laughs) nip in the air on groundhog day jimmy bites mayor's head (laughs) their groundhog's name is jimmy (laughs) jimmy the groundhog and so Tony Phil lives in the library year round and you can go see him. Did you know that? Like alive? Yeah, he's alive. Yeah, he has like a habitat in the library in Punxsutawney. God. I'm, I'm not a big fan of rodents, so like that just does not seem appealing to me. I watched a cute video of a groundhog nibbling on a carrot yesterday, so I don't really consider them rodents. I consider them their own thing. They're rodents. And trust me. They are nasty, nasty animals. That guy's probably lucky to have a face. What do you think about um, possums? Are they rodents? They're marsupials. Yeah, they're marsupials. Come on, Stephen. They look like rodents. Well, that's an evolutionary thing that just because they were in similar circumstances, they developed similar traits. Okay. Technically, ferrets aren't rodents. They're closely related to dogs, but they developed rodent-like features because probably living with rodents honestly yeah i don't think i I don't think i knew that yeah that was an argument somebody tried to like use for me once to be like let's get a ferret it's more of a dog than a rodent i was like it's just a long rat (laughs) (laughs) yeah i don't know if let's get a ferret it's like a dog is a good enough argument (laughs) no but like sorry losing punk rock points not a big fan of rats yeah, I don't know if you necessarily lose. Well, I guess you do lose punk points. A but lot of punk heck. rockers have pet rats. I think it's because really? they want to act like they still live in a dumpster. Oh God. But like, I I, I side with um, Indiana Jones' dad on that one. Not a big fan of rats. What's your dirtiest punk moment, MC? Oh, we ate dumpster pizza in Boston once. Okay. After about- having the promoter of the show buy us. Like one box of bagel bite pizzas on his food stamps card. <laughs> we got uh, lobster on food stamps in Maine once. Yeah, nice. you did. 
Yeah. I had buffalo tofu or something made in a cast iron pan, but you guys all got your own lobster. <laughs> yeah. We ended up at a, like a crack house that night before we were like, no, we're not staying here. What band was this? Uh, this was towards the end of Decontrol. So okay. like Chris was straight edge. We're in this house where like people are doing all kinds of hard drugs out in the open. There's a like no doors in this house. Like they're all taken off the hinges and piled in a pile in the bathroom. That's filthy. And then there's like some dude doing like kitchen magician tattoos in the one room. And oh, I'm just no. looking back. I'm like, that dude's getting hepatitis, but whatever. Yeah. We were young, dumb, and just thinking this was what happened every day on tour. <laughs> when I was in trunks and tails, we played the black cherry anarchist collective in Toledo, Ohio. It was on the same block of, uh, remember that video of that lady punching the drive-thru attendant at McDonald's because of chicken nuggets? Yes. It's, it's on that same block. And um, High quality people in Ohio. <laughs> they had, I'm, they've got to be closed now. I haven't checked in on in a while, but they had a, uh, a policy where they wouldn't turn anyone away from the shows, which, cool, whatever. But they were like, oh, you can sleep here in this lobby. And a bunch of them were like, we're going to go to the lake and go swimming. But the door only locks from the inside. So you guys can't lock the door because we won't be able to come back in. And then homeless folks would wander in and out because they had like snacks laying around. And one dude drank two forties and fell asleep on the floor between a bunch of band members and sleeping bags and shit his pants. <laughs> oh my God. That's, that's amazing. Man. I mean, the, that's so Ohio. Yeah. yeah not, none of us slept. in Ohio, but not really. None of us slept because the door was unlocked and we're like, this is not great. <laughs> I was always a big fan of sleeping in the van. Yeah. Like we always had like one of those old Dodges with the big, bench seats that were basically a couch that was super comfy to sleep on that old blue van hey we had a bed built in the back with like a huge futon mattress that was super comfortable and also sleeping in the van your equipment don't get stolen yeah sleep in the van with a hammer yeah we, we <laughs> stayed in san francisco and i walked in and there was just like i don't know how many days old food on like the stove still in the pan and like maggots crawling around it and I was just like, all right, I'm going to go sleep in the van. And it was hot as shit. And uh, it was like July in San Francisco, which doesn't get that hot. But still, like when you're baking in a van overnight, yeah, it's pretty shitty. Ooh. We stayed somewhere in Orlando once where we got back to this house. And these people were so stoked. They brought us donuts. And it was just a fucking trash bag, like out of a trash can from wherever they went that threw away the donuts at the end of the day and they just snagged a trash bag people were picking like napkins off of these donuts to eat them Ooh. and second Ooh. best part of this story is two of the guys in the band went next door to these dude this dude's house to buy weed and they were like their apartment was like above a garage or something so they disappeared and i was like oh, i wonder where those two went i don't want to name names because drug deals but uh, so I walk up there, I walk up the steps and I'm like, huh, I walk in and I'm like, oh, well, I see what's going on. There's like a skate video on TV and they're sitting there watching it and talking to these skaters slash drug dealers. But then I actually looked at the TV and to my horror, it was not a skate video. It was an extreme rollerblading video. <laughs> and the members of my band 
were like locked into this because the exchange hadn't happened yet. It was just an awkward discussion over a rollerblading video that they couldn't get away from. <laughs> and I saw this and as a good friend, I bailed. <laughs> you should have. Yeah. We, uh, we had a show at our house in college, speaking of dumpster donuts and Tommy, Tommy, nah, shout out to Tommy. I'm pretty sure it was him and Mick brought a whole trash bag of donuts from Dunkin donuts. And then, and the next day was my brother's birthday party. And I put a whole bunch of them in a uh, like cake pan and put saran wrap over top and took them to my brother's birthday party. And my grandpa and my grandpa, who won't even shop at a Goodwill, ate dumpster donuts and has no idea to this day. My mom won't let me tell him. <laughs> I'm telling. He won't listen to this. No, you gotta. You don't have to play in the podcast. You gotta you, tell him. Why do I gotta tell him? That was like ten years ago. That's write him a letter. Yeah, write him a letter. <laughs> Write him a letter and you'll see him like between it and after it. <laughs> Dearest grandfather, once you ate trash donuts. <laughs> Anonymous letter. You don't have to tell him it's from you. Sign it, Ryan. Ooh. Oh, my God. How would Ryan know? I don't know. Sign it from your brother. Throw him right. under the bus. <laughs> we totally tipped trash bread to a valet in Baltimore once. We absolutely did. When we recorded in Baltimore, MC, we uh, had the valet go into the parking garage and get the trash bag full of dumpstered bread from leg up farms. <laughs> oh my God. He was so sweet. We tipped him normal too, but we offered him a loaf as well. And he was so <laughs> excited for the loaf. He's like, hell yeah, man, I'll take a loaf. Like, <laughs> but you can have as much loaf as you want. <laughs> Justin, what are you excited for this year? Oh, geez. Uh, music wise. You mean, I don't care. I don't know. Wow. Do you do you know of any do you know of any bands that are putting records out? Um, first of all, I don't know why I said first of all. Yes, um, this to my surprise, I was on Spotify and you know how it like says shows you hey new releases by bands you listen to. Yeah, there's a new Suicide Machine song. I saw the announcement that their album's gonna come out. Actually, now that you say that, it's really fucking good. Is it? That's surprising. Yeah, For I listened to it. And I was like stoked on it. I was like, this is really good. Does it sound like um, the later period, like more metal stuff? No. Sounds like Destruction? Yeah. Wow. It's nice. pretty cool. I don't know if the whole record will sound like that. It's one song. Uh, there's a clap part, though. I don't know how you feel about clap parts. Oh, I'm into it. Like a. I mean, it's a ska band. You almost have to. That's yeah. True. Yeah. But yeah, no, I'm excited for that. I think that'll be cool. I don't know if else has a new record coming out. Well, lucky for you, I've got this article pulled up. Alternative Press is uh, oh. assen- essential punk bands to watch in 2020. Oh, you, know, you know what number one is? What? Green Day. Oh. Their new album, Father of All Motherfuckers, is being released in early February. Wah, and, the, and then... The, and then they're going on a tour called the Hella Mega Tour with Fallout Boy and Weezer. Yeah, I saw that tour announced last year. Big yeah. fart, big fart noise. It's uh, gonna be in Hershey. The Interrupters are opening. Oh yeah, I think I was gonna try and get free tickets to that. Is it inside at the Giant Center? It's outside in your car for free. Oh okay, fair enough. Well, I have a I have a hookup at the Suites at the Giant Center. That's how I saw Slayer. 
I don't have. I have a feeling that's an outdoor one. Um, no effects is also putting a record out. Womp yeah. womp. Alkaline Trio. Uh, Alt Press claims that we should keep an eye on Jawbreaker in 2020, but I'm guessing they're not going to do anything. Yeah, no. Taken Back Sunday, arguably not a punk band. Yeah, hard no. So, this weird thing, uh, you mentioned the Interrupters, and I had to check out to make sure I had the right one. Mm-hmm. They have a lot of really, really... Plagiarized? Not necessarily plagiarized, but we'll, we could say they are, but a lot of center-right and far-right views... Really? Huh. That are like subtly or not so subtly hidden in their songs. I read a whole thing about that a while back and it was just like weird, but you know, that's how bands do things these days. So I don't want to keep coming back to this list, but the vibe, <laughs> the vibe of this list is a little bit ridiculous because one of the bands on it is that band dangers from California. Do you guys know dangers? Yeah, they're great. They are great. Yeah. But the, but the little blurb underneath it, from altpress.com says dangers haven't dropped a new record since 2016 in fact they appear to have disappeared musically with the exception of some live shows we can only hope this means the california hardcore crew are working on their best album to date so they just picked bands that haven't done things in a while and are like maybe they'll put something out this year because paint it black is next on this list and it says while they put out an ep in 20 yeah 2013 it's been over a decade since their last full length and we think 2020 would be a great year for a proper release are they just like, oh, I like this band. I want them to do something. Maybe this article will influence them to do it. That seems like it more so than like, I remember when I used to read the physical magazine, they would have most anticipated. I think for... if they're trying to pick a band to try and influence from the outside, Painted Black is the last one they'll have success with. Yeah. The only way Painted Black, they'll play like one show with local Philly bands and it'll benefit uh, the food bank or something. And that's it. Andy's still in ceremony, right? Uh, I guess so. Okay. I don't want that to make it sound like I was slandering Pant Black. I didn't mean that. No, I didn't, take, I didn't get that impression. Okay, good. You got all silent and weird. No, I'm trying to find out about this interrupters being right wing. I'm on Reddit, and there's way too many words for me right now. I'm gonna. Yeah, I was looking at that too. Yeah. <laughs> Did you guys see their cover of that Billie Eilish song? Them. Yeah, the interrupters do that bad guy song. I don't really know that song. Yeah, you do. The 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 one thing I just read is that like after this guy wrote an article about some of these views being very questionable, especially the singer's like older writings and stuff, the guitar player, somebody else in the band, replied and never came out and said, No, she doesn't still believe that and just kinda like turned it into a promo thing. So that's kind of weird. Was it like send them back to where they came from writings or what? I have no idea. I don't remember. It was just like for a popular punk band, it was shocking to hear that they were definitely on the right slash far right end of the spectrum as far as politics go. The Is it the guitar player that's Lars Fredrickson's kid? Oh, I have no idea. Someone is a Fredrickson. I'm pretty sure. We're all skunks. <laughs> We're all like a bald head and some face tattoos away from being Lars. That's yeah, that's a good way to put it. Justin, sing that Billy Eilish song. 
I won't because you're not going to cut it if I do. Yeah, well. I doubt that very much. No, I promise. <laughs> I don't trust you. I swear to God. You know, <laughs> you don't know the song? They're like, um, hold on. I got to find the lyrics so that I don't just butcher the hell out of it. I got to find my. Okay, name. so according to Wikipedia, three of the members of the Interrupters are brothers. Okay. They all have the last name Bivana, Bivona, B I V O N A. Oh. One of them worked with the Transplants and um, Tim Armstrong's solo record. For some reason, I thought one was a Fredrickson because when I saw Rancid outside with the Dropkick Murphys a couple years ago, Lars invited, he's like, hey, my kid's going to come out and play this. Like, he played the keyboards on Time Bomb. Oh, and nice. That, and they was like, oh, check out his band, The Interrupters. I mean, this just looks like the singer, guitar player, bass player, and drummer is mentioned in Wikipedia. So, or I'm sorry, it's wearetheinterrupters.com. Ah, okay. So okay. I'm sure that like being that type of band with some ska influence, they have a lot of other instruments going on. Kevin is Lars's Lars Lars's Lars's Lars Lars's Lars son. Kevin is Lars's son. Okay, I didn't get that far. It's no, I just googled. So their know. last name's fake. Got it. Well, it says proud of my he he posts on Instagram. Proud of my son, Kevin's sweatshop, and the rest of his band interrupts Instagram for putting out this amazing record. How long do I got to suffer for not getting him a pony ride on his 12th birthday? <laughs> have, have you guys seen that? Uh... Well, then his son replied, this is actually pretty funny. Thank you for the daddy issues that fuel my songwriting. Truly a blessing in disguise. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> have you guys seen that uh, documentary, The Other F Word? I didn't watch it, no. No. Um, there's a point in it where Lars goes, when you have a kid, you wonder, should I have gotten skunks tattooed on my forehead? Probably not. <laughs> it's pretty good. Um, Steven, so that song, the chorus goes, so you're a tough guy, like it really rough guy, just can't get enough guy. You don't know that one? No. No. I don't know it either. It's cool. I'll send it to you guys. I'll send you the Interrupters version. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks. Um. MC, what do you have coming up at the garage? Um. This Saturday, February eighth, is No Heads at the Garage, the Atomic Capital. I guess their record label kickoff show. Um, Civilian has a seven inch coming out and they're putting out a tape release of zero mentality, which I'm pretty sure it's just like most of the same members switching things up and doing a different band. Yeah. yeah. That's kind of how Cody Bunce works. Um, but that's cool. Um, the 22nd, we have public serpents playing the garage Saturday, February 22nd, um, which is members of choking victim. Oh, tying wow. it back in, doing a ska band. Um, and apparently they're putting out a new album at some point early this year. Um, then there's not a whole lot this spring just yet. Um, we have Stolen Wheelchairs and the Executors playing on 
March 28th, I believe. Let me check my notes here. Is that the yeah, one we're playing? Yeah, that's the one we're playing. March 28th, Stolen Wheelchairs and the Executors, also Old Tigers. Um, and then every first Saturday of every month, I do my show up at JB Love Drafts, which has been a lot of fun. Not just because their food is good, but because it's a great venue. All right, I got a good topic. Hit me. So, if you murdered someone, oh jeez, how and like how and where would you hide the body? I have a question. Is it like in the heat of the moment type murder, like a passion kill, or is it like a planned out kill where I have time to prep? Uh, I think it'd be more interesting if we had time to prep. In this fantasy, am I me? Or do I own a farm with many pigs? <laughs> I wouldn't call it a fantasy. <laughs> in in this fiction you've created. Oh, look, this, I've seen this... the movie Snatch too, and yeah. feed them to the pigs is a great way to get rid of a body because they no, eat everything, bone know, and all. You could go to Joe's farm, I guess, if you wanted to, like. Oh yeah, yeah. we do have a farmer pal. Does he have pigs yet? I don't know. He has sheep. They're like the same thing, but with fur. But they don't eat everything. Yeah, I don't think that sheep are just fuzzy pigs, bud. I said furry, not fuzzy. Uh, well. Um, okay, so go ahead. Well, I, I saw the meme where you got this from. Okay, I scrolled by that very quick. I didn't actually read the meme, but it... It's yeah. pretty funny. But uh, I gotta find it now. So I always had this theory... Oh, Lane posted it. Holy shit. Yeah. I scrolled that fast that I didn't even see you post it. Um, I always had this theory that, like, the best place to hide a body, obviously, like, you have to dig the hole before you murder somebody because it's really bad to get caught digging a hole. Digging a grave. If there's a hole that you're digging with a body laying next to it, because then that becomes a grave, as you just said. Um, so the theory is you dig the hole first and the next theory is you should find land that's not easy to dig, meaning we're in an area where there's a lot of limestone. I was going to say through a layer of limestone, you put the body down there, you put a ton of rock back over top of it. Then you lay this, the ground back on top. No one's finding that. Not for a long, long time. Okay. Or like, you know, just do the old, what is it, Breaking Bad, where they just used chemicals to dissolve the body in the bathtub. Yeah. Yeah. And that's science. I live pretty close to the dump. I feel like that would cover the smell pretty good. You don't hear about that often, people hiding bodies in the, the dump. Well, yeah, so I learned from the Sopranos that you just drive to South Jersey and you toss them in the woods. <laughs> yeah, then the Jersey Devil gets them. Yeah. And he doesn't come for you because he, you're feeding him. Right. It's like a sacrifice, yeah. Yeah, it's like a whole thing. Uh, what about you, Justin? How, how would you hide a body? Well, I just said about the dump, but... Uh, you know... I have the river, the Schuylkill River in my backyard, and uh, last year and the year before, bodies actually floated past my house in the river. Um, I don't know the origins of the bodies, if they were murders or whatever. I feel like you wouldn't, that's not hiding it, but you could just set it 
to sail on the river and it would be out of your hands because no one would know where it came from. When you say set it to sail, do you mean like... Viking funeral? No, just plop it in the river and let the current take it where where it may. You're going to get caught. You think? Why? Um, Because you're just... The body's going to wash up. There's going to be some sort of evidence. It'll wash up, but there's a whole street full of houses along the river right next to me. How do you know which house it came from? Yeah, I mean, if they knock on your door... And Somebody has a goddamn ring doorbell aimed at the river. <laughs> and I, th- I think you live in a pretty small town. They're going to go, that fucking weird guy who has the big head probably killed him or her. <laughs> you haven't met my neighbors. I'm not the weirdest guy on the street. <laughs> so here's, here's how you do it. Rental car. Okay. Road trip. Walk away insurance. No, no, because that ties you to the vehicle. Fair <laughs> enough. No, that's just for fun. So I don't think you can't rent a car with a, uh cash or anything anyway you're gonna be tied to the vehicle either way i think well yeah you're not getting rid of the car you're just using the car you're oh, road tripping. go right. wherever the hell you want dumping yes. a piece here dumping a piece there how do you uh how do you escape having blood stains and hair fibers in the trunk well if if it's a premeditated murder you've done your due diligence and already like gotten that taken care of by the time you get the body into the vehicle it is sufficiently probably in like coolers and saran wrap wrapped up that you can and laying on the passenger seat and like a like a kneecap in the trunk no no, no. Oh, you, have not... like, you have like a couple big coolers in the trunk you throw your luggage in there you know camping gear or something so if you get pulled over cops are like shit you throw some beers in on top it's like dude i'm going camping and get drunk in the woods gonna be a great time so you're dis- then... you're dismembering the body before the road trip yeah 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 okay Maybe maybe make it a really fun road trip. Go visit state parks. You know, Yellowstone, toss a hand at a bear. I'm a little bit disappointed that you wouldn't pull a weekend at Bernie's through all the national parks. Put this guy in the in the fucking passenger seat and see slap some I sunglasses. just have always pictured that if I murder somebody, it's gonna be pretty violent. Okay. So yeah. the body wouldn't be in the best condition. Now if it was like like what what did they do in weekend at Bernie's? They just basically overdosed him right they shot him full yeah. of drugs and the body's yeah. in good shape why not drag him around you guys can come along i'm a fan of the fargo wood chipper scenario i'm trying to think of something a little bit i hesitate to call any murders fun but you could uh put this fella in the driver's seat of the rental car and wreck it with the dead body inside and then report your rental car stolen I feel like that still ties you to the body pretty closely. Yeah. The other, oh man, see, the road trip thing really comes into play because from the serial killer documentaries, I've found that people that travel a lot get away with it for a long time. Like truckers make great serial killers, like long haul truckers, because, oh, I murdered somebody in Arkansas. Now I murdered somebody in Idaho. It's hard to tie those together because you're a thousand miles away two days later and like yeah let's see the body ends up somewhere extremely far away from both me and where the person is supposed to be on a daily basis hi lois um that really minimizes the chances of getting caught i think i'd go all in and like i'd want to get caught oh no shit 
you know where I would dump the body? Um, oh my God, what was that documentary on Netflix about that county in California where they grow all the weed, but people get murdered all the time? Murder Mountain or something? Murder Mountain. I just drive to Murder Mountain, dump the body off the side of one of those roads because every road looks like the, you know. Yeah, you could yeah. drive off it and never be found and then just drive home and the fucking podunk cops out there will find a body in 10 years and be like, well, it must have been old Marv and never charge <laughs> old Marv with fucking murder because old Marv pays them a ton of money in fucking weed tax or whatever. Yeah. Because, I mean, that was basically the conclusion of that documentary. Well, we know who did it. Can't do anything about it. Oh. I just slopped ginger ale all over my pants. <laughs> Wait, I thought it was ginger beer. It is ginger beer. What, Lois? Yeah, Lois goes, I just washed those pants. That was the most husband-wife thing I think I've ever heard. Oh, crap. I just spilled ginger ale. I just washed those. <laughs> this is why I just never wash my jeans. Yeah, why would you? I usually don't, but... um. I was planning on doing double work today, so she put them in the laundry, and then I came home and had an office day and wanted my pants, and they she picked them up off the floor and put them in the fucking wash. You know when you say an office day, you mean playing hooky. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> A little bit. I did work. I did taxes. Oh, I got to do that this week. I'm not looking forward to it. Oh, this um, the interview on this episode is Greg Bank from Trial. Steven, do you want to talk about going to see Trial in Chicago? Yeah. Chicago. What was that? Chicago. Oh, okay. So yeah, uh, we it was Fat Paul, who, as we know, but not everyone else knows, is not fat. Used to be fat, long time ago. How long ago? I'm see, twenty years. <laughs> yeah, it was like high school. Yeah. Like I don't remember Paul ever being fat enough to be called Fat Paul. Yeah, so t- at least 20 years, probably. Yeah. Um, it was me, Fat Paul, and Matt A. Paul. And I was like, I guess I was 18. I think it was 18 plus, so I had to have been 18 to go. And uh, it was at the Metro in Chicago, and we drove there, which was a shitty drive, but I slept in the back the whole time. What's this that, like 16 yeah. hours or so? Yeah, this isn't that great of a story. We, we stayed with... Fat Paul, someone Fat Paul knew from like couch surfing. Oh, uh, he was big on that at that time. Yeah, like everyone was. I don't think couch surfing is a thing because now there's Airbnbs. Yeah, but back then there was like a couch surfing website. Yeah. Which basically was the same thing as Airbnb. You could like rate the people who let you couch surf. Right, yeah. It so, just became Airbnb. People figured out how to monetize it. Yeah, so we <laughs> stayed with this guy and he was actually pretty cool. I forget his name. I wish I could remember. Um, and Fat Paul didn't even have tickets to the show. He was just like, yeah, man, I'll go along. I'll go along Chicago. I got a friend. I got a buddy. I couch surf there. You, we can stay with my buddy. I couch surf in, in Chicago. And so he didn't have tickets to the shows, but, uh, he came along and, uh, there was a pre-show, I think indecision headline oh. at the subterranean, which is a pretty small venue. And that was cool. And wait in vain played and wait in vain covered, uh, Godhead by burn. And I was so excited. Was was Keith in Wait in Vain at that point? I don't know if he was. I'm not sure, honestly. But anyway, Wait in Vain covered Burn. They covered Godhead by Burn. No one gave a shit, right? Except you. Right. 
And I remember going to the champ a lot when I was this age. And all the fucking Harrisburg hardcore kids used to make fun of me for liking bands like Burn and 108 and Trial or whoever, One King Down. Now, all those fuckers are going nuts when Burn's playing This Is Hardcore. And it's the same people who make fun of me for liking Burn. So I fucking know who you are and I see you. And I see you guys being fucking liars. I know you made fun of me for liking Burn. And I saw you mosh to Burn on a video on the internet. So don't think I don't know. Anyway, where was I? Uh, you saw Wait in Vain play a Burn cover. Yeah, it was cool. Um, who else played? Uh, not Hope Con, the other one. Or was it Hope Con? It was either Hope Con or Suicide File. <laughs> Because it was the uh, Burning Fight show, right? This was the pre-show. Oh. It was like a pre-show. It was either Hope Con or Suicide File. But either way, they're both great, and whichever one was was cool. Um, yeah, it was cool. I remember being really scared during Disembodied. <laughs> <laughs> and which, you know, I, I, I like Martyr. Do you remember that band Martyr AD? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Which that was basically Disembodied after Disembodied. Oh, yeah. I don't think I knew that. Yeah, I was really into them when I went into it through like a metalcore phase. So like seeing that was kind of weird, you know, from that transition. But anyway, on the way back, we totally hit a deer and Matt A. Paul uh, totaled his car in LaPorte, Indiana. And um, did you have to stay the night? Is that why you know the town is called LaPorte, Indiana? Yeah, we stayed the night. It was close to South Bend. Okay. Um. And then we just kind of like wandered around trying to figure out how to get home the next day because we didn't really have smartphones at that time. Right. And we ran into a guy on the street named Mathis, like 50, like a gray haired guy named Mathis. And Matt Apol and him just hit it off. (laughs) And he gave us a ride. Well, first we found out the car was totaled at this mechanic shop. And the first thing the guy said to us was, you got it? Reference the deer, and said no, and then he's like, "Where'd you hit it?" So we're like, "I don't fucking know. We're not fucking from here." But the guy back and got that deer, and uh, so Mathis took us to a bus station, dropped Fat Paul and I off, and Matt A. Paul stayed with Mathis. Oh no! And I don't know what went down at all, but I know I took a Greyhound bus from. Uh, South Bend all the way home to Pennsylvania and I was sitting next to this huge fucking do you remember Ruben Stuttered from American Idol? Yeah. He, it looked like Ruben Stuttered and he kept taking my armrest. So like scrunched up in the fucking Greyhound bus on this like 15 hour drive and uh, I think we had a layover in Pittsburgh so we had to sleep in the bus station in Pittsburgh. Then it dropped us off in Harrisburg Someone picked us up, drove me to the champ where we opened for reignition, opened for Bane. <laughs> and then, so you, uh, so you didn't even go home, you just went straight from the Greyhound to the gig, huh? Yeah, and that's, that's how much of a rocker you were. And I think TJ played bass for us at that show because we didn't have a full band. I don't, I think it was when LBJ quit because Colby pantsed him too much at shows. <laughs> Good reason to quit. Yeah, well, it, the final straw was a New Brunswick basement show where LBJ was doing his natural creepy thing and talking to a girl. And 
It may have been me. It was either me or Kobe just walked up and pantsed him, and it all came down. <laughs> you mean his, his cow print tights came down, too? Yeah, his little bipper popped out. <laughs> and he was so pissed, and he wouldn't talk to us, and the drive home was so awkward. And <laughs> he quit reignition, and TJ had to play bass for when we opened with Bane. Which Bane tour was that? Old champ or new champ? It was new champ. Wait, and was it with honor? No. Well, oh, with, I, it was a at that point, I don't think. I saw him with, with, with honor and uh, global threat and new champ. Yeah, I remember that. It was way after that. All right. Let's, uh, let's get into the interview with Greg Benick. All right, well, welcome to uh, second interview of Two Beats Off Podcast. Tonight we have Greg Benick from uh, Trial, uh, Between Earth and Sky, Bystander, uh, 100 for Haiti. I'm going to run out of breath if I keep going, but a lot more we'll get to talking about here. How's it going, Greg? How are you tonight? It's going really well. Thanks for having me on. I totally appreciate it. This is fun. Yeah, thanks for coming on the podcast. It's been... Uh, I think probably about eight years, maybe, since the last time we saw each other. So we'll have enough, plenty to catch up about, I guess. Yeah, I think so. I think, I mean, has it been eight years? Maybe it has. Maybe six years. Let's just, let's go with six or five years, just so we don't feel like life is zooming by and we're going to die within minutes. Maybe it's okay. Years. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll just years. keep it between us. No one needs to know. <laughs> All right. So um, I guess we're, we're going to, we're going to go back. What was, what was it like? Did you grow up in Seattle? What was little Greg like? Uh, little Greg wanted to be a rock star. Little Greg uh, grew up in Connecticut, and I spent uh, my young life doing nerdy things, reading books. Uh, I, I remember when I was a little kid, I, I remember telling my mom that I read the entire encyclopedia A to Z. I don't know if that's true or not, or if that was just me trying <laughs> to uh, impress my mom for whatever reason or impress people. But uh, yeah, nerdy things, reading books and um hanging out with friends and just doing typical little kid stuff but i grew up in connecticut not in seattle so when did you uh move over to seattle then i moved to seattle when i was about 20 and i had been living in connecticut and i went to syracuse university for a year and i wasn't a match with syracuse because it was uh while hardcore was great and it was just getting started in terms of earth crisis was just forming there was a lot of energy there um, at the time, I just didn't connect with the school itself, and I couldn't justify staying in Syracuse because it was a real party school, fraternity, sororities. And I dropped out to do a year-long apprenticeship with a mask maker, a guy who did theatrical mask making back in Connecticut. Yep. So I went home to Connecticut, studied theatrical mask making for a year, and then at the end of that... Um, he, he said, so what are you going to do next year? And I was like, I have no idea. And he suggested that I go check out an acting school in Seattle that he knew of. And I flew out here, auditioned for school, and uh, got in. And the rest is, as I say, history. So you were kind of already into punk and hardcore when you moved to Seattle then? Oh, definitely. Absolutely. I, I got into punk and hardcore when I was about 15, maybe even earlier. I might have been, no, let's, let's go with 14, 14, 15 years old. I heard it for the first time in Connecticut and uh, had a, a you know a couple bands, freshman-ish year of high school myself, sophomore year of high school, and then into high school. Uh, so that definitely preceded Seattle. Do you remember what the 
bridge was into punk and hardcore because presumably you had some sort of other musical taste like alternative or metal or something do you remember your bridge yeah oh definitely i was a, i was a metal kid um definitely hair metal was my thing um all the 80s hair metal bands rat motley Crue, uh quiet riot skid row uh you know the list goes on wasp Dokken, all of that but there was a guy who lived up the street from me named chris and he had come over to my house with a recording of punk bands on a cassette tape that he had he'd gotten off the radio or something and he came over and we listened to i remember um, the meat men angry samoans alien sex fiend who were kind of more new wavy ish punk and uh the circle jerks and i remember as soon as i heard this stuff who's could do i was transformed i couldn't believe that these bands could swear you know whereas you know you'd never hear <laughs> you know skid row might come across as though they were tough but alien sex theme has a song called smells like shit you know i thought oh my gosh you can't say shit in music but evidently you could <laughs> so i started wondering like wh- where does their lawlessness come from these bands like they're really not following the laws of uh, heavy metal and then i learned of course about all these other bands and started buying records and realized there were shows in connecticut and then it was all downhill from there so backing up a tiny bit here and for a uh, potential reference in the future what was your very first um whether it was cassette or cd or whatever what was your very first um album purchase the very first ever album purchase Yes. Oh, yeah. No, no question about it. Very first album purchased. I was in first grade and I bought uh, Kiss Rock and Roll Over. Um, and Perfect. I remember bringing Kiss Rock and Roll Over into my first grade show and tell class, Mrs. Haymore's class. And all these kids were bringing in like their pet rock or a stick they found or some stuffed animal. And I brought in Kiss Rock and Roll Over and asked Mrs. Haymore to play it for the entire class. And I remember her saying something like, well, this is very different. And I have a feeling that she called my mother after class to let her know that I'd brought in this album. And uh, yeah, I remember that plain as day. I haven't thought about that in years. That's amazing. Yeah, Kiss Rock and Roll Over. That was the first first record I bought. Not a bad place to start. It's, yeah. it's wild thinking that that would have been problematic at that point, whereas I don't feel that Kiss is all that... Uh problematic anymore (laughs) no not at all i mean like they're they're guilty of like the same sexuality in their songs that every single musician more or less in the mainstream either touches upon or delves into and they do it in such a at times bubblegum kind of way you know i want you baby type of stuff (laughs) that i can't imagine that it would be you know raising any eyebrows today but back when i was in first grade yeah i might as well you know brought in Gigi Allen. I mean it was it was intense as I remember. You were a Satan worshipper. Yeah, I mean I was I was maybe six or seven years old and I was obviously on a on an errant path that merited a family phone call and intervention. I do remember uh this might show our age gap here, but I remember in middle school taking uh an AFI Art of Drowning C D to my middle school dance and we were allowed to bring in requests and they put on AFI and I tried to get my uh, middle school friends to circle pit with me. No one would, and then I just looked like an idiot. And uh, I don't, yeah, I don't think the teachers thought it was cool either. I doubt they called my mom though, because my mom was kind of into AFI. So. Yeah, I love this. I love the way that, like, I love the way that, and 
you know, that we each come to punk rock and hardcore and we don't know anything about anything as we discover it. And even my early, you know, punk rock discoveries, you know, who's could do, like I mentioned before, and, and some of these bands, you know, you don't know what to do with it. You know, why wouldn't you bring it to the dance? Why wouldn't you be a <laughs> six year old and bring heavy metal into into class? We don't know that it doesn't quite fit. We just think it's cool. Just like somebody else might think that. You know, Britney Spears is cool or whatever they think. You know, we think that, yeah, AFI is great. You know, I can't believe this thing Blink-182 is so cool, but other kids, you know, maybe don't think so yet. So then, then we funny. found out. Yeah, <laughs> and then we found out. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you, you uh, moved to Seattle. Uh, when did you kind of run into Tim and the other guys and start up trial? Well, as I remember it, I was um, living in Seattle for a few years, and I, how did I meet Derek and Tim? Derek and Tim were living together in the mid-90s, and I'm trying to think of how I, how I originally met them. Um, that's a really good question, and as I talk, hopefully I'm going to remember, but I remember Derek and Tim coming up with the idea for trial. They called me and asked me if uh, I wanted to be a part of the band. And at the time, well, I, I know that Derek and I had done a band, that a very short-lived project. Oh, wait a minute. I remember how this all came about. Derek and I had a short-lived project called Dry Gulch that I played drums <laughs> for. And Dry Gulch was this kind of rage against the machine kind of, you know, rap, not rap influence, but just kind of like rhythmic-y. I don't even know how to describe it. It was terrible. Um, uh, band. <laughs> that our friends sang for. I played drums and we had a demo. There's a dry gulch demo in existence uh, with a song called The Burning Question on it. I, it's, it's about as far as I remember. I remember I found it either online or I found MP3s a few years ago and gave it a listen. I was like, oh my God. But after dry gulch, uh, you know, not disbanded, I don't think we we're ever really a, a, you know, a band other than that demo. Tim moved up here. He had been playing in a band called... Uh, Blindside, if I remember correctly, in Sacramento, and came up on tour with a band called Nationhood. And Derek and I were there. There might have been even a Blindside Dry Gulch show. I bet maybe Tim or Derek could confirm that. And then from there, when they decided they wanted to form a band that had kind of the late '80s spirit to it, but you know, you know, something more in terms of ideas behind it, political ideas behind it, they asked me if I wanted to be a part. And uh, given that I had no skills musically, I mean, I could barely play the drums. I decided to do something else that I had barely the skills for, which was pick up a <laughs> microphone and try to sing. I mean, obviously, you were into politics when you started Trial. Um, did you grow up with that kind of mindset or did you kind of learn that from becoming part of the hardcore scene? Okay, so it was a little of both. So my high school in Connecticut was, was a strange little high school. And it wasn't a private school, it was a public school. And it wasn't the best quality school. It wasn't a rough school. It just was a nondescript kind of nothing high school, to be honest, at the time. But there was a few shining gems among, amongst the faculty. And one of them was this guy, Mr. Hadzima. And he was of native descent. And Lakota, if I remember correctly, and he taught an elective class called Native American Culture. And I took this elective. And while on the surface level, he taught beadwork and like some native history and, you know, what's the significance of a 
this or that from native culture, whether a totem pole or a, you know something you know something or other. Amidst the native history, he was infused with with a political bent as I as I reflect because my my political awareness of the injustices that were committed against Native Americans came from his class when I was like a junior in high school. So I got involved with with Native American awareness, for lack of a better word. And then when I moved to Seattle, I, I brought that with me. And I was reading a lot at the time about uh, Native Americans and injustices against them, ways that our society had gone astray, for lack of a better term, by, you know, by its involvement in genocide. So when Trial formed, those ideas were, were on my mind, which is where a song like Trial's 500 Years came from. But I think that I think that in addition to that, there was just a whole infusion at the time and a building up at the time. This is, you know, sort of when Trial formed, it was 1994, really, when we first played as headline and then we became Trial early 95. There was a building up of political bands. I mean, it was just what was happening at the time. Earth Crisis had kind of taken the world by storm. Mid 90s was coming, and with the mid 90s, you know, in full force, there was just every band having an opinion or an attitude or a position. So I was just kind of in the right place at the right time with the right mindset to be a part of something much bigger than me, certainly. I think that's pretty rare, too. Usually, uh, you find with your high school teachers, you don't ever get the full story, especially as far as uh, Native Americans go in their history. You never ever hear of someone learning what actually happened i know i didn't until i like either googled it or someone told me i was an idiot because i said something wrong yeah and i think that what was going on was that you know growing up in connecticut it's kind of undeniable that you're on native land um i think you know and and, and that's true anywhere right but i think that anywhere in the united states certainly but i think that you know given the fact that my town was formed you know, in the whatever it was, 1590s or something, you always had a sense that you were on colonized land and that you were on stolen land. And I remember my friends and I growing up would would walk around in, in these cornfields in the town I grew up in and find arrowheads. We'd find, you know, spear points. We'd find native artifacts. And I remember when I moved to Seattle, right before I moved to Seattle, I donated all the spear points and arrowheads to uh, the uh, American Indian Archaeological Museum in Washington Depot, Connecticut, because I mean I had that many of them from just walking around. So you always had a sense that you were you were walking on history when you were walking around this town. So I think it, it kind of fit that we got a little bit of the uh, of the history plus a little bit of the infusion of, of politics from this guy. It was it was kind of a, a, a perfect match. And yes, I agree with you. Totally rare. So walk us through the early days of trial. Like you said, you formed and figured out your name to be trial in 95 but like what were those first couple shows and your demo and stuff like walk us through the beginning of trial sure well we formed and we were called the headline and the name came from a magazine that i was doing at the time a political punk rock magazine called headline communications which had articles on sexual assault and articles on uh different injustices in the seattle area i think homelessness maybe 1994 or so and I had done one like short folding paper issue. Gosh, I haven't thought about this in forever. And then there was an actual print zine, a headline communications print zine, which came out. There might have been Sea Shepherd information in there too. I can't remember. But um, when when we were, when we decided to disband, the original name was Headline, and the idea was 
wow, what if this zine with political ideas, since that's what you know Derek and Tim ultimately were thinking about. They wanted to do this, like I said, late 80s hardcore band that had some ideas behind it. I thought, what if the band and the zine were tied into one another? And, you know, they could come out in conjunction with one another, essentially. But uh, we didn't actually really love that idea. It, it just, it, it, it felt too much like, like the, the band was following the zine. So we wanted the, the band to have its own identity. And we racked our brains trying to figure out what a better name would be. And I remember we all had, you know, a thesaurus and dictionaries. And I wanted the band name to be Earth Dies Screaming. And I wanted to name it that <laughs> after an Atari, of an unknown, a rarely found, relatively unknown Atari 2600 game console game by the same name. Um, <laughs> Earth Dies Screaming. This was not Space Invaders, Pac-Man, or Asteroids uh, for, you know, a- uh, ancient game fans and nerds. This was Earth Dies Screaming. And I thought that would be that would be a good name because that's kind of felt like the way the world was going back then. Little did I know it was going to get much worse. But um, we decided on on the name Trial because beyond the legal ramifications of the name, it meant an effort or an attempt. That was what like the fifth dictionary definition. So we thought, you know what, if the Earth is indeed dying, screaming, you know, we got to at least make an attempt or or you know try to make it better. So that's why we we picked that name. And I remember. We recorded the trial demo and had demo tapes at our first show, not the first show with the demo, but I remember the, the demo selling really well. What we, had, what we had done was we had booked a show as headline and we gave out lyrics to kids, I remember, before the show to all of our friends so that we could get pictures of kids singing along <laughs> at the first show. To That's get a good move. Photos. Yeah, to get those photographs in the layout for the demo. So I remember Dan Dean had gotten the lyrics and was singing along, and we got the sing-along photo, and we thought we were the coolest people in the world. Because, <laughs> uh, but you know, for the demo release show, we had a demo with actual sing-along photos on it, and that was uh, you know pretty clever as far as we were concerned. But the demo, the demo sold wildly well, at least in our terms. And you know, we might have sold maybe fifty or sixty of them at our first show, and we thought for sure that was as good as. Uh, you know any uh, major label rock band, so we just decided to go for it. You know, it was it was off and running then. So you guys did um, you did through the darkest days in '96, right? Yeah, that sounds about right. '96. What uh, what was the recording process like for that? Do you like how did you pick who you recorded with? Was it a friend? How'd that oh, go? Was, this is this was atrocious. Like this this is a, this story is one for the ages. <laughs> like this is crazy. So we didn't know where to record. So we asked Botch where they had recorded and botch had recorded awesome. with this guy who I don't even want to name because he doesn't deserve any more shame than how bad the records sound. Okay. That, <laughs> that's enough. Right? But his name was John. I don't want to give his last name, but his name was John. He was a gardener by day and he had a small 16 track recording studio in his basement and that he recorded bands with at night. And he should have stuck to gardening. I'm sure he was quite like good at gardening. He had a nice house and his garden looked nice. But um, I remember him telling me when we walked in that that uh, and he told the band that, you know, we were going to take him to the, the, the next level and he was going to take us to the next level. And I think <laughs> John thought that we were going to do this punk rock seven inch and then get signed to Sony and then be off and running like 
whoever you know he, he dreamed of rage against machine quicksand whoever you know had signed the right. latest at that point and i remember him telling me we're gonna make your vocals bleed and i was like that's not cool <laughs> <laughs> but the reason that the vocals sound so awful on through the darkest days and on foundation is because i let him push me in his way like no no we gotta push harder and that's exactly the wrong approach to take vocally always is to push harder to get what you want i mean it's all about technique um, so I just remember there were times there were uh oh moments in the studio where he would go uh oh and have deleted like a guitar track that Tim had laid down. He didn't oh know what no! He was doing. <laughs> yeah, it was a nightmare. I remember, but and he was also a weirdo too. Like I remember he had this really gorgeous wife. I can't remember her name, and that's unfortunate because I hate to call her just the wife. I mean, she was a human <laughs> with a name. But I remember at one point him asking us all, like, you know, what do you think of my wife? She's pretty hot. You know, you want to get with my wife or something? And we were all like, uh, not really. He's like, you can if you want to. You can get with my wife. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you know? oh, no. And that's, not, that's not an exaggerated story. I mean, I, I'm toning it down for your podcast because what he said was, do you want to F my wife? And I don't know if you allow swearing on your podcast, but I was just like, wait is he trying to entrap me? Like, cause his wife's <laughs> like, I mean, even the fact that I'm having this conversation with you now, years later tells you how traumatic it was in the moment in the studio. Cause we're trying to focus on writing a record or completing a record. And this guy's asking us about his wife. Like, I wish that Tim was on this as well. Cause Tim, Tim would remember this. Like, like it was yesterday as well. We were both like, what is even happening here in the studio? And then we went back for the foundation record. Like, what were you thinking? <laughs> I, I was going to mention that, uh, that you said you recorded foundation with him too. I was like, with that experience, what made you go back? I mean, maybe we thought, maybe we thought, all right, maybe it's our chance with the wife. You know what I mean? Like the record sounds terrible, but maybe, you know, we, we get a, a, a new girlfriend out of this. It was just ridiculous. Whatever it was. It was like, hell yeah, bro. Let's go back there. <laughs> let's go back. Well, I mean, also though, we didn't know where else to go. Meaning Botch had done their record. And we'd done Through the Darkest Days. And then Through the Darkest Days, even though now it sounds like garbage, at the time was like, wow, this is cool. Like, we've got a seven inch. It's on vinyl. It's, you know, we put it out on Crime Think Records. And Crime Think was this, like, awesomely, you know, radical label run by the Crime Think crew. And that felt politically dangerous. And we were like, okay, we're on the right track. So we... Right, you're excited. You're, yeah, we're excited. You don't know what you're doing. You're excited about anything. Yeah, it's like, you know, it, it's like doing this podcast this might be terrible too but i'm excited and it's fun and, you know all the next <laughs> oh surely it is <laughs> so we didn't know what we were doing and there, there also weren't many options and we didn't have you know recording budgets you know i think that that first seven inch might have been recorded for eight hundred dollars or something maybe or or less and then the second one is around the same when we when we signed with new age so when did you guys start to kind of gain traction was that before these are lives or we i guess you guys didn't last too long after Are These Our Lives, did you? Yeah, no, I mean, I, quite honestly, like, I've kind of run this over in my brain quite a quite a bunch since Are These Our Lives came out. So, you know, w when we put out Through the Darkest Days, we would tour the U.S. once or twice a year, West Coast from time to time, East Coast, what have you. We never went uh, to Europe uh, in those early days in 1996. And then when Foundation came out, which was 97, um, we were still just doing U.S. type of touring and, and very small shows. And not getting a ton of a following. I mean, put it this way. It was enough that, that we would go out on tour and people would come to see us or people were buying the records and seemed to be into them. But when Our These Are Lives was recorded, we had actually taken, I think, eight or nine months off because we'd had three people quit the band. 
Um, Derek and uh, Brian Johnson and Mike Green had quit the band to form HIMSA. And that left Tim and me by ourselves, essentially, to finish Are These Our Lives and really, you know, refine the songs and rewrite the songs and whatnot. And, you know, because all the songs had been kind of, you know, under, you know, Tim's creation, even before the guys quit. But we refined and rewrote and worked on the songs, just the two of us throughout eight or nine months. And I had taken a ton of time off because my voice was so thrashed after dealing with John and the gardening studio. So I took time to heal my voice and do a, um, a study with a, a vocal coach, an, op- an opera coach of all things, actually. It was really helpful. And then we enlisted Brian, uh, Brian Redman to play bass and Alexi from Catharsis to play drums and went in the studio to record Are These Our Lives uh, 20 and almost going on 21 years ago. Uh, I think it was, you know, 90, uh, 99, I guess. Yeah, it was 99. So that record can drink now. Yeah, it can. I think it can. I think it's coming up on, in this spring. This, that record's old enough to drink. Wow. <laughs> so through touring behind those records, were you still working? Were, did you have part-time gigs in between, in between tours, or were you focusing fully on the band? Yeah, everybody, everybody had part-time, uh, part-time or full-time work. I was the only one, you know, I worked for myself and, and I always have. So I've always worked as a performer and or speaker my entire life, going back to when I was just a, a little kid. I got started actually as a juggler. So I was doing gigs, you know, when I would come home, whether that was at fairs and festivals or parties or whatever I could get my hands on. And, you know, we we squeezed that in, in between in, in between tours. And it was challenging because my work books long in advance or at the time certainly booked long in advance of tours happening and shows happening so sometimes it would interrupt touring and um but everybody was trying to take work whenever they could get it and then you know tour whenever we could whenever schedules would would align i totally just assumed that trial broke up and you were like fuck what do i do now maybe i'll learn to juggle you know what that would have been a great story um, yeah. But I actually learned to juggle when I was 13. I did my first professional gig when I was around 13 years old and uh, and did that all through all through my teenage years. And that's that's the way where that all came from. You know, but one thing going back to our These Are Lives coming out is that even when our These Are Lives came out, we broke up shortly thereafter. It was never a, a record that we toured to acclaim, meaning right. it, it just came out and that was it. And then the band was done. And when I say I've thought about this a lot, I've thought a lot about what happened like why is it that put it this way literally last week the other day three days ago four days ago before the weekend i had um a guy stop me on the street in seattle and tell me that are these are lives changed his life and that he was from russia like four four days ago okay that's 20 years later what what happened that we created a record that got heard by so many people and appreciated by so many people and i'm entirely convinced that um, that if we look back historically, that when the record came out, no one did care. But then it started to kind of be heard by a handful of people. And then if you think about it, like the the Internet speeds that were increasing, you know, over time in, you know, the in the early 2000s made it so that you could actually, you know, of course, share songs and then download full records. And I think it's because the Internet happened that people started to share information and or the entire record, because there's no way we sold as many records as people had heard of the, the the album, if that makes sense, by the time we did our reunion shows. And when we came back for reunion shows in 2005, 
there's no possible way that there was that much uh, support due to record sales. It was right. literally due to kids sharing the entire record and having no band to back it. Like, oh, check this out. This, band, this, this record's great. Band broke up. This record's great. And then all of a sudden we came back and people were like, oh, we can actually see this band too. This is cool. I think it was literally, the, again, the right timing, the right record, the right internet speeds. <laughs> That's what led to people being into it. And it's just... It's it's a, I consider it an incredible gift uh, in my life artistically that people have paid attention to that record as much as they have and have cared as much as they as they do. It's it's really incredible. I totally remember like the first time I heard it because it was a friend of mine who was like probably seven or eight years older than me, and I I assumed he probably heard it either from someone older than him or who sent it to him on the internet. And then I remember being in his truck and being like, "What the hell is this?" And him telling me, and then I remember also trying to find it, not being able to find a physical copy of it for a really yep. long time. Yep. And there you go. That, that's the other thing about it is that, you know, when the record came out, um, I remember there not being a lot of support in terms of physical copies. So if you heard it via a friend or via the Internet, you couldn't get it. So that created not like a, I don't want to make it sound like there was this furor, fury around it, you know, where people were going insane and clamoring, we got to get the trial record. But it was, it was something that, you know, if you wanted a copy, you couldn't get your own copy. You had to really seek it out and even then might not find one. So I think that that contributed to um, people's kind of craze about it as well, which is, I mean, it's, it's meaningful because, you know, I, I worked for two years on, on, the, on the lyrics. I know that you know, that Tim worked impossibly hard on the music and we put a lot of time and energy into a very different studio and the recording of the record. And we were, you know, we just were really happy with it. So, and I still, to this day, I listen to it. And I'm like, this is amazing. Like there's literally one thing I've always said, there's one lyrical moment I would change. Other than that, I would change nothing on that entire record. I'm just still to this day as, you know, my goal was to write a record that would stand the test of time until I was 90, that that the ideas on it, I would listen to at age 90 and, and think, oh, yeah, hell yeah, this is exactly on point. And to this day, I feel that way. It's interesting. I think that that story of that crazy story of putting out a record, break, breaking up and then people finding the record in the interim and then coming back to way more acclaim than the band had when it existed is almost a uniquely punk and hardcore phenomenon. Yeah. I mean, it's true, right? I mean, I, you know, I don't know where that comes from. Cause I think most times if a band puts out a great record and then breaks up and then they come back, there's not that many, there's not that, there's not that much um, energy behind it, but in punk and hardcore, I think that that happens. What, what other examples come to mind for you when you think, when you think about that other than well, the, the trial experience? Uh, sitting in my, my office here, I have a Latterman poster and I thought about when Latterman broke up on their last record and didn't get the tour on that. And then those shows all sold out and they played almost exclusively that record. There you go. Or even you know, something you totally like, uh, have to tell us what the lyric you would change is now, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, the, the lyric, uh, uh, cultural norms, functionless forms, um, is, 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 is simply not correct. Um, cultural norms, um, are, are most definitely, uh, functioning. Uh, the norms that we adhere to in our culture serve a definitive purpose. They give us uh, a, sense of, a sense of psychological stability, a sense of belonging, a sense of meaning, and they are certainly not functionless forms. They are functioning forms. So at every trial reunion show, 
uh, that we've that we've played uh, when we're you know playing these songs and we get to one step away and we get to all you know whatever songs we're playing on the record they're all the same uh, except for those particular lines uh, cultural norms I always sing functioning forms um, and it, when, whenever I've talked to people about this I'm like please feel free to sing functioning forms uh, you may sing functionless forms uh, out of irony or maybe you disagree <laughs> but I'm, I'm entirely convinced that that was not quite accurate so yeah I think that that's the biggest regret you have lyrically coming out of it, that you did okay. Yeah, because the thing is, you can interpret it, and now I'm going to nerd out completely, and this is the part that gets edited <laughs> out of the podcast when you're like, you know, insert Greg nerded out about his own lyrics. <laughs> but but realistically, it's like you could see like cultural norms of like Instagram popularity. Uh, that's a bad example. But like, but things that seem more superficial as being functionless in comparison to things which are really life-enhancing – but psychologically, cultural norms serve a function. So there you have it. Nerd nerd hour with Greg Bennett complete. <laughs> <laughs> so trial broke up pretty soon after that. What what led to that? Because every time I, I tried to do research, so I didn't ask you the same questions everyone asked. And every time it just says, due to differences, which is <laughs> fairly vague. Think, okay, so as I remember it, I want to say that it was my fault, but it might not have Greg. been. No, no, I, I want to say it was my fault, but it might not have been. Here's 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 what I remember. I remember that Tim, Tim and I, you know, always had this during the band a love hate relationship. And, and, you know, now it's all love. But back then we, we just didn't get along incredibly well. And I'm going to say that I'm, I'll totally claim my responsibility for, you know, my half of that or more. I was a fun destroyer in the late 90s. <laughs> I was deadly serious. I was deadly serious. I, you know, this band was literally going to change the world or we were going to die trying. The ideas on the record were life and death. There was no in between. And I probably wasn't a lot of fun to be around. At least that's the way I remember myself being just like really like pretty intense. And I think that that Tim, you know, wanted to have, you know, more fun at times. And but I remember Tim being hard to get along with. So we would be at odds probably because our hard to get along with nature was different meaning we were probably hard to get along with for different reasons so we weren't getting incredibly along at the same time i remember we had differences about uh guarantees for shows tim was thinking we should tour more and have guarantees you know so we could make a living and i was kind of going to kind of more like anarchistic crime think influence like no we just got to go out and do this and starve to death and you know that kind of side impractical side of things so that's another point where I, I could have i could have bent a little bit and had the band survive longer but i also remember at the time that my schedule as a performer was getting in the way too because you know people would want to tour in the summer well that was when i was getting booked you know quite a bit so that that got in the way too but you know I, I, there might be other things that i'm forgetting meaning maybe I'm, I'm heaping this all on myself and if you asked him he'd say it was his fault but I just remember it was it was differences in terms of schedule, in terms of approach, in terms of timing, all that sort of thing that um, that led to things falling apart, which is, you know, it, it's strange. I, I said to Tim not too long ago, uh, within the last year even, that I will always regret that trial didn't do more and I will always be satisfied with what we did. And I mean deeply satisfied, like the fact that we got to put out our These Are Lives I'll go to my grave saying, oh, hell yeah, that was worth every second of what we did as a band. And at the same time, I'll always regret not playing more. But who's to say, you know, we could have put out a sophomore record that would have been a train wreck, an embarrassment, a letdown. Or could have put out a sophomore record that made Are These Our Lives 
seem like Through the Darkest Days. No offense to Through the Darkest Days, but I'm just thinking like, what if we put out the next record that made our these our lives seem not not quite up to par? No way to tell. And that's why I'm always kind of going back and forth in my mind, like, damn. And oh, hell yeah. It's like this like dual side of things in me where I'm just like regretful and also incredibly satisfied about it. Because again, guy from Russia, you know, stops me on the street last week. And I was joking with friends who watched this happen. They're like, dude, you just got recognized. <laughs> and you know, and uh, you know, still the fact that this guy said, you know, he's, what he said to me was your band messed my life up. Your band messed my life up and saved my life or changed my life. Oh, yeah, changed my life. Your, your, your band messed my life up and changed my life. 20 years after the fact. And this it's not like unique that I hear that from people, that the trial record is still meaningful to them. It's just who could ask for anything more from an artistic piece of artistic output than it than it's meaningful to people? I mean, that's deeply satisfying, even if uh, even if the band ended seemingly prematurely. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the whole idea behind it. If you don't have an everlasting impact on anything or anyone, then what were you really doing? Totally. And like how many bands, and I'm kind of playing devil's advocate for both sides now, how many bands become sick of it all? Zero, there's one, or one, sick of it all. How many right. bands become banned, right? I mean, very few. You know, there's, there's these kind of like full-time-ish touring bands, you know, that, that stand the test of time. And could trial have been one of those maybe but i i have a big question mark at the end of that because i think there's i think there's a shortened lifespan for intensely political bands i think that i just i really do i think that that's um i think that's realistic that you know i, I don't know how intensely political we could have stayed over the years i mean propagandis managed to do it but would we have been i mean but even they are they're not a hardcore they're not a, like a a hardcore band the way trial was they've got melodic influences and like genuine talent across the board you know, <laughs> they no totally fans. appealed to like a broader audience oh, for sure God, do they ever yeah they're fantastic so so the point is it's like you know realistically we, we would have done another record a few more tours who knows what you know but again even as i'm saying that the sense of satisfaction i have over what we accomplished you know both as a band then after breaking up with reunion shows and then shows where we were playing again unbelievably satisfying for me i'm just you know, I'm, I'm talking to you while in a room that's got you know bystander between earth and sky spoken word and trial posters all over it and i keep them up as a reminder of what's possible in my life not what should have been so maybe a little bit of a stroke off session here but i think there's only so much you can do as far as reaching a very specific audience when you're speaking politically through a punk or hardcore band and as one of the few people who's kind of continued their career to make an impact on lives especially outside of the diy punk and hardcore realm you're probably one of the most important individuals to come from that scene good that makes me feel a lot better about whatever happened in 1999 and 2000 cool okay you know what, what do i what am i paying a therapist for i should just talk to you guys once a week this is great I'm available most nights, not Thursdays and Fridays. But. <laughs> Good, let's schedule like 10 or 100 sessions. I'm ready to go. No, that's, I, I really appreciate that. I, and, and the reason I appreciate that is because I've always felt in punk and hardcore that we can always do more than simply attend shows, even though attending shows is great. And we can do more than just singing in, playing music in bands. You know, we can push ourselves amidst all of that to do more. 
And I don't want to just be a finger pointer and say, you can do more. I always try to point the finger at myself. Like, what more can I do? You know, like, for example, and you know, maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves, but when Bystander formed, you know, a, a year and a half or so ago, I was like, am I allowed to be <laughs> 48 years old and start a new hardcore band? Can I do this? And I was like, hell yeah, why not? I mean, yes, yeah, John not? Joseph. Dude, exactly. <laughs> I've always said to myself that when John Joseph posts, instead of about running, instead of about running triathlons and whatever, and you know, Cro-Mag shows, he posted last week about blood clot. It's like, dude, <laughs> are you serious? And I, I'm all for it. I'm all for it. The day that John Joseph posts and says, "Due to the geriatric numerical age I have achieved, I am simply done." then that becomes the point at which I say, okay, once I reach X years of age, I have to stop because John Joseph gave up and that guy can lift a Mack truck over his head and throw it across a river. So like I'm done at that point, but as long as John Joseph's going, so am I. Well, we're kind of transitioning here between trial and what goes on after that. So I think this is a perfect time to call in our buddy, Sean and pick out your topic and you guys get to debate for five minutes. Okay. Bring it on. So, I'll, well, I'll get Sean on, then we'll kind of explain how this goes. Hopefully he answers right away. I don't know. Thank you for agreeing to uh, debate a random pulled-out-of-a-hat topic with two complete strangers, too, Greg. Appreciate oh, yeah, that, your, sounds, your... that sounds fun. You hear, Sean? Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right, great. All right. So, Sean, Greg, Greg, Sean. Sean, nice to meet you. Good to meet you, Greg. <laughs> I'm for now. So, the topic is cereal is soup. (laughs) Okay. uh, Already, I'm chomping at the bit to talk about this. And and Sean might be a a relentless beast in terms of debate. How do you want to run this? You take one minute for your opening statement. We'll give Sean his opening statement. And then we'll let you guys go back and forth for a couple minutes. (laughs) Is it time for me to dive in right now? I'm ready. You're re- yeah, if you're ready, go ahead. Who cereal. has to take which position? Like soup, like cereal is soup or cereal is not soup. Did anyone feel a certain way towards it? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, Greg, go for it. <laughs> All right, Greg, your time starts now. Cereal is absolutely soup. And the reason is. Soup is a food that is eaten from a bowl with a spoon, and the reason that it's eaten from a bowl with a spoon is because you can't eat it any other way. You can't eat soup with a knife and fork. You can't uh, eat it uh, in, in, in any other way than other with a spoon because you have to scoop the ingredients that are floating in the broth, in this case, rice milk, oat milk, soy milk, what have you, into your mouth with that particular utensil. It's through the mechanism of eating with the spoon that we get the definition of soup, uh, a cereal as soup. I mean, it falls right in line with such questions as, is a hot dog a sandwich? Uh, Is a burrito a sandwich? If you roll up a slice of pizza, is that a sandwich? Those are to be debated in future episodes of the podcast, but a cereal absolutely (laughs) is soup. That was perfectly... One minute, Greg. Well done. <laughs> Sean, have you prepared an opening statement? Uh, I have, yes. All right. Sean, your time begins now. 
I would argue that cereal is most definitely not soup. Uh, the basis for my argument will center around the fact that you cannot buy cereal, to my knowledge, in a can. <laughs> so we all know that if it's a soup, that soup clearly comes in a can. Everybody knows that that is the, the Earth's primary source of soup and soup ingredients. <laughs> Uh, personally, I've been to a number of grocery stores and perused <laughs> a lot of cereal aisles in my day. I, I don't know that I've ever seen cereal uh, come in a can. I was pretty much raised on Frosted Flakes, which is why I fell asleep in school every day by 10. But uh, I never saw it in a can. Every soup I've ever eaten has come from a can. Well done. Thank you. And now, where do we go from here? Greg, what are your thoughts? You oh, guys, freeform free for a couple minutes until <laughs> delaying. Oh, my thoughts are that Sean's position is ridiculous because just because soup doesn't come, or just because cereal doesn't come in a can yet, doesn't mean <laughs> that cereal is not soup. I would ask my parents had a wired landline when I was growing up. And they still have a wired landline for their phone when I was growing up, not a cell phone. Does that mean that their wired landline is not a phone because it hasn't achieved the technological advanced, technologically advanced level that cell phones have? Or, for example, you know, I think that uh, if it's not Tesla, I know that Toyota announced uh, self-driving cars without a steering wheel. Uh, I think that was I think it was either yesterday might have even been this morning. Does that mean that the car that I'm driving now is not yet a car because the technologically uh, the technological advancements that surround its production and presentation to the world are not yet what it will be? Cereal in cans is coming. That doesn't negate the fact that cereal now is soup just because you can't buy it in a can yet. Two years from now, five years from now, 20 years from now. When our children and our children's children are using a can opener to open a can of cereal, we're going to look back on these early days fondly with a sense of nostalgia, knowing that we just simply had pre-can cereal before it took the form that other soups like itself take. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Sean, you sound convinced. (laughs) Tough first debate. (laughs) <laughs> oh. Oh, yeah. All right. I, it, to, to rebut uh, my distinguished colleague's sentiments, um, I would simply say, by his own logic, uh, are we saying that uh, oatmeal is uh, cereal? Oatmeal is hot like a soup. You know, this, this is a wildly different thing. Cereal is always cold. You wouldn't heat up a bunch of oatmeal or make it really cold and be like, all right, I'm going to have this cereal for breakfast. That's completely ludicrous. Uh, by, by, by nature, by definition, really, cereal is served cold. Uh, <laughs> you're floundering sean Pick yeah, up. May, yeah. may i may i retort to my <laughs> colleague that that oatmeal is stew 
And that is an entirely <laughs> different debate. In addition, those who enjoy gazpacho, a soup always served cold, would agree that gazpacho only differs from cereal in terms of the ingredients within it. It is soup just as cereal is soup, and it is served cold. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm just a simple man of the people. I don't know about <laughs> foods such as gazpacho. Um, I'm a simple man of the people. I'm a soup can aisle, uh, a, a man, a canon, a plan, cookbook kind of American gentleman. Um, <laughs> So I'm gonna I'm gonna ride that I'm gonna ride that can argument all the way down the toilet. <laughs> nice work, fellas. That was really good. There it should is. We, nice should we give them clo- closing statements, or do you think that we they wrapped that up pretty good? <laughs> I don't know what more there is to say about it. I mean, Greg, I feel like you could go on for a little bit more. Do you? <laughs> I, I'm just I'm excited to have a bowl of cereal tonight for dinner. This is this is, this is inspiring. <laughs> Either either that or maybe I'm gonna pour like uh some like uh you know some some cereal in a bowl and then just open a can, a can of soup and dump it on top of it. Just just a cold can of oatmeal for dinner. <laughs> Well, here's what we'll do. We'll post this episode and we'll let people, we'll let the people decide who won the debate and uh, we'll go from there. How's that sound? That sounds great. Thank you, Sean, for, <laughs> for that. <laughs> Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Greg. Justin, Steven, you're terrible friends. <laughs> Thanks, Sean. See you guys. Bye-bye. That was hands down the most creative thing anyone has ever done in an interview. Ever. And I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about you. you I guys, think it's going to be a recurring segment. Oh my gosh, that was amazing. No one's ever thought about that before. Even I mean, your questions have been great and fun so far. But I mean, debating is uh, is cereal soup. You know, I I do a uh, I do a, a radio show Monday night six to eight o'clock Seattle time called Punk Rock Pariah with my friend Cameron and people as a plug can check out past episodes at punkrockpariah.com. And there is um, certainly room in, in the podcast for ridiculous topics. And every week what we do is we, um, we, we ask listeners for topics. It could be anything. Like somebody could write in and say, talk about whatever, uh, books, talk about computer monitors, talk about Donald Trump, talk about uh, snails, whatever it is. And we'll just chat about it. But long after your episode goes up, so we don't take away the fire, I want to uh, bring up to Cameron, is cereal a soup? And see what he says on, on, on the air. Because he's a lawyer, and I have a feeling he's going to be opinionated too. Oh, absolutely. That's a great idea. You got you don't have to wait. You can do it whenever you're ready. I think it's, I think it's really, it's a, great, it's a great topic. Totally caught me by surprise. <laughs> you thought we were going to ask you some kind of political question to debate. I so seriously actually... did. I seriously <laughs> thought you'd be like, so the impeachment of Donald Trump. Uh, Donald Trump's uh, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And I'd be like, uh you know, and have to give some consolidated opinion about what, what have you. But, uh, yeah, I'll never look at cereal or soup the same way again. That's the goal. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Good work, Greg, though. That I, I was feeling the heat for a little bit. So, <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so I've always said, again, credit where credit is due. Um, my mom 
is an incredible speaker. Like she's out of control and any speaking ability or, or, or any such thing that is in me comes from my mom. Credit where credit is due. I, I had heard my mom over the last bunch of decades, you know, talk about speaking and in front of groups and whatnot. And I'd never seen her speak. And about three, maybe three-ish, four years ago, she had a speaking engagement where she lives now in rural Virginia with my dad. And I was out on the East Coast. I go to this hospital with my mom where she was going to speak. And she, on the way there, she's like, Gregory, my speech is sold out today. And I'm like, what? Your speech is sold out? What does that even mean? We get to this hospital and about 150 people had bought tickets to hear my mom speak on exercising as we age. As That's awesome. Okay. Everyone in the audience was 80 and 90 years old. Okay. She walks in and my mom stands about, a, you know, like, like four and a half feet tall. She walks into this room and she's got all her little notes and she's like arranging them at the front of the room and they, they introduce her, you know, please welcome Diane. Okay. The second she opens her mouth, she looks at the audience and she starts pointing at members of the audience. Like she was singer at a hardcore show. Like she's like, <laughs> you don't exercise as you age. And she's all intense. She's like, you will fall down the stairs, break your hip. You'll probably die at the bottom of the stairs and they will read about you in the newspaper. And I'm, back of the room. I'm like, oh my God. Like my mom just told this entire room full of people they're going to die. She spoke for 90 minutes. It was unreal. Like she, like relentless, like totally relentless. And at the end of it, you know, thanks the audience politely and goes back to all of her notes and she's waving at her friends and whatnot. But I sat in the audience. I'm like, oh my gosh, okay. That's where speaking naturally came from. Thanks mom. You know, so yeah, it's all credit where credit is due. My mom won the debate. Props to mama Bennick. (laughs) (laughs) We should get her. Oh my God. We should have had her debate you. Oh yeah. (laughs) My mom. But you know what's funny? And this is this is part of what, what I appreciate about my mom so much is that unless it's like in her mind totally go time, she probably would have been like, Well, you know, I like soup and cereal and both of those and Gregory, if you like soup or cereal, then whatever you like. But you know, if it was in front of a live audience, yeah, she would have torn my head off and thrown it down the street while screaming <laughs> cereal is soup or whatever. Yeah, she's intense. <laughs> so to uh segue a little bit, after trial broke up it was uh you continued your activism work it wasn't only about punk and hardcore for you so uh tell us about the world leaders project oh yeah so uh, this world leaders project is technically still ongoing i wrote another round of letters uh two years ago or so but i'll tell you what what happened i was uh listening to sheldon solomon then psych chair of the psychology department at skidmore college in new york talking about the Bush-Gore election debate, the voting debate that happened after the 2000 election. And he said something like, wouldn't, wouldn't it be interesting to let these guys know that their aspirations towards the presidency are based on their own desire to stand out as significant, based on psychology sort of developed and put forth by a man named Ernest Becker. And, and I, I've studied Becker's work throughout my life. I'm currently working on a biography about Ernest Becker. Sheldon is one of the foremost researchers about Becker's work. And in a nutshell, Becker basically suggested that that the reasons behind human behavior are rooted in our desire to overcome our fear and anxiety on a root human level of our own mortality. So what he was suggesting was that, uh, meaning Sheldon, he was suggesting that Bush or Gore knew that they would transcend their mortality 
almost to a, a state of immortality by being elected president and being in the history books forever. So I went up to him after his speech and I said, all right, let's write to Bush and Gore and let's write to every other leader of every other country on the planet and invite ourselves to come and speak with them and share ideas put forth by Ernest Becker about why is it that we aspire towards greatness or aspire towards power? Why is it that there's, there's violence geopolitically? One of the reasons is because we are trying to make sure that our systems of heroics, our systems of meaning live on beyond those of our opponent. And remember, I'm paraphrasing decades of thinking and writing and books into just a sentence or two for the sake of, sake of the podcast. There's a lot more to be found uh, in Becker's books, uh, The Denial of Death and Escape from Evil, as well as Sheldon's work in what's called terror management theory. But the point is, Sheldon and I wrote to every leader of every country on the planet and basically invited ourselves to come and speak with them. And we got um, tons of rejection letters and two acceptance letters from the governments of Belize and the governments of Guyana. And uh, the Belize trip was was uh, canceled due to 9-11. There, be, there was no flights out of the country right after 9-11 when we were supposed to go. But we went to visit the president of Guyana and spoke with the president. His name was Bharat Jagdeo. At the time, uh, we spoke with him about uh, Becker's influence on the role of human violence. And we talked about race and we talked about... Um, just why it is that human beings in dire situations lash out at one another. It was pretty epic and it was an incredible experience and I've always wanted to do more with it. The problem being after 9-11, the rules changed basically. You can't just write to world leaders as readily and say, hey, I wanna come visit you and have people be like, sure. I mean, we walked into the presidential palace in Guyana. I honestly don't even think we showed ID. I think we showed up and we said, hey, we're the, we're the weirdos who wrote to the president. And they were like, sure, come in. Uh, I don't think you can do that as much anymore. So we, you know, we didn't get response when I sent out another round of letters a couple of years ago. But I'm going to pick that back up and write more letters, um, probably as early as this summer, to be honest, uh, and, and and write to people because I think that the ideas have merit more than anything else. Sure, it's exciting and fun to say that I spoke to a world leader, but I think it's also uh, the ideas have merit. And I think that rather than go from society's dregs looking upward to see what we can do, which is what punk rock and hardcore often does, saying we're the we're the, we're the rejects. We're the ones who didn't belong anywhere else. Let's let's get behind one another and push ourselves along in society. The idea was, what if we start at the proverbial so-called top and see if that has any sort of, you know, for lack of a better word, trickle down effect in terms of policy. And granted, we only got, you know, that one meeting, but still it was it, it's a cool idea. I was about to say it was a cool idea, but it is a cool idea. And I'd love to see it continue. So along those same lines, uh, could you tell us about the legacy project too? Was that kind of something that fed off of exploring those ideas? Absolutely. Legacy project ties in as well. So the legacy project was founded by my friend, uh, Dave Whitson and myself. I produced a documentary with my friend, Patrick Shen of transcendental media out of Los Angeles called flight from death. That was in 2003 and uh, flight from death was about Becker's work. And it was trying to explore the roots of human violence. And I was in Poland at Auschwitz, actually technically at Birkenau, standing at the, the remnants of the gas, the gas chambers of Birkenau. And I was with a bunch of Polish friends and I was telling them I wanted to take flight from death to concentration camp cities around Poland to show the film, to hear from people how they have managed their thoughts and feelings about death and how death has affected them over the course of their lives. 
And when I got back to Seattle, they and all my Polish friends were like, let's do this. I got back to Seattle and was telling my friend Dave, who's a history teacher about it. And he said, I've got an idea. Why don't we do that and take high school students with us and explore what, you know, young people in Poland have experienced growing up, what their their forebearers have experienced growing up in terms of their parents and whatnot and grandparents. And then we'll share ideas about death and share ideas about survival. And that's where the Legacy Project came from. So at this point, the Legacy Project's mission is to explore reconciliation and restorative justice in places which have experienced extreme trauma. So we've taken groups of high school students to Poland to study the Nazi, the Nazi occupation and the Holocaust, South Africa to study apartheid, Chile and Argentina, Chile and Argentina to study disappearances and death squads. Um, we've gone to Rwanda to study the genocide, Uganda to study the dictatorship there, Canada to study the effect of uh, genocide against First Nations people and the uh, First Nation people and the uh, residential schools there. And we're probably going to go back to Poland next year. We had booked a trip to Haiti this last year to study the effects of the earthquake and the aftermath of it. But uh, it was canceled due to the, to the extreme uh, political unrest in Haiti this last year. But yeah, there's a website at thelegacyproject.com that needs a total overhaul. And I've got all the materials to do that. I just have to carve out the time for it. So what was the uh, the reception like? I mean, specifically, I guess... I didn't want you to go through each one because we'll be here all night. But when you met with the president of Guyana, what was the reception like and what do you think resulted from it? And what did we gain from the meeting? Great question. So so when we met with the president of Guyana, you know, he didn't have time to prep about Becker's work. So we basically just came in and gave these ideas to him. And probably sounded like we were trying to proselytize, right? Or, you know, probably sounded like we're like, oh, we found the way. And it's through this book, which sounds a lot like Christianity, right? So we we handed him the book, uh, The Denial of Death by Ernest Becker. We had a great conversation. We had a conversation about the differences which which exist between thinking about things psychologically and thinking about things more immediately and practically. You know, his position was basically like, you know, once we get through issues of race and poverty, then we can talk about psychology. And our position was, once we talk about psychology, then we can talk about race and poverty. So I can't say what came from the meeting. I'm glad we went. I felt it was productive in terms of just getting that door literally and proverbially open, proverbially, uh, proverbially, I'm saying that word completely wrong, <laughs> getting that word open literally and figuratively. There you go. Um but I, I think that there's merit in talking about these ideas, whether with world leaders, whether corporate leaders, whether individuals, whether punk rockers. So over the years, I've taken it to, to punk rock and, and done spoken word shows around the world where I show the flight from death film, even though that film is 15 years old at this point, 16 years old, and, and talk to people about their thoughts about it and share these ideas, not to share the gospel of Ernest Becker. That's not what it's about. And Becker would have hated that, but rather just to share ideas about psychology that might shed light on why it is that we behave the way we do. You said you were going to Haiti next? Yeah, we, we'd wanted to go to Haiti with the World Leaders Project, but that got canceled this last year due to the political, political unrest. Basically, the U.S. State Department raised its travel level warning to almost oh. its highest level, if not its highest level, for Haiti, which means that we were basically asking a school and teachers to let us take kids to a country that the U.S. State Department felt was as dangerous as like Sudan, or Iraq, and you just you can't do it. The insurance won't cover it. So we're going to try to go back to Poland next year because the rise of the extreme right in Poland in the last few years 
is shocking and horrifying. So we want to explore why it is that Poland has had a resurgence of right-wing supremacy uh, where it was a, a focal point of such things 70, you know, 70 some years ago. So how does that affect your uh, 100 for Haiti project then? Does that cause any issues with that as well or no? Well, in the last year, it was tough. It was tough to do work in Haiti. Now we're back. Now we're back up and running. And in fact, in the last week and a half, I've been able to post a lot of really great victories at the 100forhaiti.org website. And people, if they're interested in going, all those words are spelled out. Uh, O-N-E-H-U-N-D-R-E-D-F-O-R-H-A-I-T-I.org. Um, but yeah, so the work that 100 for Haiti does in Haiti around clean water, uh, anti-violence education initiatives, uh, putting roofs on houses and feeding hungry kids, that work is continuing now, but throughout the year, it was difficult because we work for the Haitians. We don't work for our own glory. So we would call the Haitian people and be like, hey, do you want to put roofs on houses? You know, we can send money down. And they'd be like, we can't get to where we would need to buy the supplies because there's no gasoline. So there's no point, you know, that sort of thing. So, you know, we were told to to hold off on on a visiting and be at times doing the work that we wanted to do. Because like, for example, the anti-violence education initiative the, the social workers couldn't get to rural communities. There wasn't gas for the vehicles to get them there, like available anywhere. So some things were on hold or upended, but we're back back up and running now. So how surreal is that feeling going to a, like knowing you grew up in Connecticut, then moved to Seattle and going to a country like Haiti and seeing the struggles they go through. What's that feeling kind of like when you get there versus when you leave? Yeah, it's it's a great question. It feels like sickening levels of privilege. And I say that not coming from the perspective of having been wealthy growing up, because I wasn't, but even the fact that I have the time to sit with you both and chat about cereal and soup, which is incredibly fun and we should do it every single day, every single day. Over a computer. Over a computer. Yeah, over a computer, over over my iPhone, right, in, in, in in uh, in my apartment that I rent. Um, and afterwards, you know, I joke about, oh, I think I'll get some cereal. Well, I, don't, I don't have any cereal here at home. I'm going to have to go buy some. I'm just going to go buy some cereal. All um, right. The fact that I can do those things is a sickeningly obscene level of privilege. So when I go to Haiti, I always have to remember that, that my cultural blinders and my cultural worldview are shaped by extraordinary privilege. And when I go to Haiti, I approach it always with with humility or humbleness, but also uh, as acute a sense of listening as I can muster. Because the Haitians know a different reality. They know what they need and what they want. And if if I truly work for them, then I have to to listen to them uh, through the lenses that they've come up with culturally. So it's it's always a shock, to be honest. And it's it's a very good reminder of the resources at my disposal. How uh, how's their reception towards even not necessarily even Haiti, but just wherever you've gone? Um, how's their reception from the locals towards your project there? Um, in Haiti, it's great. I mean, yeah. in Haiti, it's great because because I honestly think we are going in. And I'm going to say this with a little caveat before and then explain it after we're going in with the right attitude. Now, that said, one can always shift and change their attitude and always change their approach. And every time I go to Haiti, I learn something new about how I can better approach people, how I can better listen to people. But I know that, um, for example, when when Nathan from 100 for Haiti and I have gone to Haiti, we learn so much, even as that, that culture shock and privilege awareness uh, sets in, we learn so much. And reception has always been, to be honest, really 
quite excellent. We make friends. We don't make uh, recipients of relief when we go, meaning we're not handing out dollar bills and saying, see you later. You know, we're the saviors. We'll be back again someday. But we're really listening to people. And I think that people people get that. So the relationships we have there are really strong. And uh, I miss it dearly. And I can't wait to go back later uh, later this, this summer in 2020. The, uh, the way you talked about, you uh, phrased as sickening levels of privilege, is that part of what led into you making the documentary about the, the water system in Haiti? Um, in, in a sense, the way that came down is that we were making Flight from Death, and then after Flight from Death was made, uh, Patrick was reviewing footage that w- wasn't used in Flight from Death. And actually, Sheldon Solomon, who I mentioned earlier, who's like this hippie-looking guy, you know, uh, former psych chair at Skidmore, had said something in his interview about the fact that he was a haircut away from getting a job at Harvard. And Patrick thought we should interview those who are marginalized, specifically in the context of prestigious universities, and hear what they have to say. And his idea was that we seek out janitors, custodians at prestigious American universities and talk to them about their experiences. And I said yes to it and and produced what became The Philosopher Kings with Patrick. Uh, Patrick directed and produced. And The Philosopher Kings sought out janitors at, at prestigious American universities and interviewed them rather than interviewing the, um, the professors or the administrators. Well, one of the custodians we interviewed, a man named Josui Lajeunesse from Princeton, two hours into his interview about what it was like to be a, a custodian by day and taxi driver by night, mentioned that he sent all of his money home to Haiti to have a clean water system installed in his village. And we were like, wait, what? Let's talk about that. And in talking to him more, the idea came about to do a documentary uh, called La Source about his village and his, his determined drive to get a clean water system in his village. That was unrelated to 100 for Haiti, or rather related only insofar as that 100 for Haiti at the time started helping him in his village and helped connect villagers with one another and connect them with social workers, you know, us essentially as social workers, and just drew connections together, like almost in a team spirit. But, um, but uh, yeah, that was an individual project, La Source, unrelated to the future work that 100 for Haiti did, but that movie also came out. So somehow on top of all of this, 100 for Haiti, the legacy project, you doing your normal like keynote speaking, you started doing your own spoken word tours through punk and hardcore venues. Um, I'm curious what your specifically what it was like when you went to Russia and what kind of a cultural what kind of cultural differences you noticed there and the reception to that tour. Absolutely. Well, uh, you know. Spoken word came out of being on stage with trial, meaning I, I don't bring much to the party, right? I'm not the most gifted vocalist in history. I, I have an affinity for writing lyrics and I love writing lyrics, but it's through this, the, the speaking or screaming of, of, of words and sharing of ideas that I feel like I connect best with people. So when I didn't have a band, I thought, wow, I could still go speak and make connections with people. And decided to go out and, and just try it. And it was terrifying. And, you know, because I, I feared being judged by my peers. And in, in a sense, I guess you always are, right? But when I had the offer and opportunity to go to Russia with spoken word, I, I took it. And I was really excited. I have some really good friends in Russia. And I was asking them, did anybody else ever do this before? Has anyone else ever done a spoken word tour of Russia? 
because we started to put it together and we were looking at like 21 dates across Russia. And my Russian friends categorically said, no, no one has ever done this before. And I had to ask, I'm like, even Henry Rollins, like the guy's been everywhere. And my friends were like, no, he's only done a, a couple shows in Russia. So right before the tour, I wrote to Henry Rollins and I said, Henry, my name is Greg Benick. Um, I'm just wondering, have you ever done a spoken word tour of Russia? He wrote back within 15 minutes and he said, tried it, working with a translator wasn't great. Shows didn't go as well as I expected, Henry. And I didn't write back. I didn't want to write back and be like, oh, well, hey, I leave next week for 21 dates across Russia and have him be like, oh, well, screw this. And like, you know, put on his gym shorts and like get in his plane and fly to Russia and do 275 dates in the next six days and, and, and best me. So instead, I didn't say anything. The day I was leaving for Russia, I sent him the Russian tour poster and I just said, oh, I'm sorry, your shows didn't work out. I'm going to give it a shot, too. And the whole poster had all 21 dates listed in Russian. The whole poster was in Russian. It looked pretty badass. It had Matt Miller's like fabled trial photo of me at Burning Fight with my arms outstretched on it. It looked pretty cool. And I was like, you know, you know, hey, all the best, Greg. And he did not write back. So I loved the <laughs> idea of, of uh, infuriating Henry Rollins, uh, at least, you know, for a moment in my life. But he probably smashed his computer that day. <laughs> he, he might have. He might have. Uh, you know, sorry, Henry. Um, but uh, so I went over to Russia and did, we did 21 dates. It was incredible working with a translator. I loved it. Every single line, every night translated into Russia, Russian line by line. 21 dates across the entire, entire nation. Uh, That's from awesome. Kalin Kaliningrad to Vladivostok. Uh, we took trains, you know, the proverbial trains, planes, automobiles. And audiences were so receptive. And what was fascinating was that the turnouts were incredible. It wasn't like everyone was coming to see Greg Benick or Greg from Trial, although there certainly were tons of hardcore kids who came. But there were nights where turnout was 120 people or 150 people or something. And I was speaking in a theater or speaking in a museum or somewhere or a youth center. And I think people were literally thinking, some guy from the United States is here in Eastern Siberia. Let's go see what happens, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and just showing up. Uh, it was really great. It was really inspiring. And I've got tons of notes. I've taken notes on every tour I've done. I've recorded every spoken word show I've ever done. Uh, so one of these days I'll, I'll start releasing some of that stuff, either as a book or as a something or a spoken word record or who, who knows. But yeah, it was really uh, just, just for me, it was all about the connection with people, all these spoken word tours like just Australia a couple months ago, Iceland earlier in 2019. It's all about connection, meeting people, and ironically, listening to them, not so much speaking at them, but listening and connecting. And Russia was like top-notch example of that. I'm kind of going to go a little, not off topic, but so recently, this is a hockey segment here, right? Okay. Recently, they had the World Juniors Championship, and Russia was part of it, and it turns out they were playing in Russia games that Russia had won from years ago to the public of Russia. Meanwhile, Russia had been eliminated from the tournament. Did wow. you experience any sort of interference from the government or whoever, anything like that while you were over there? So it's one of the, one of the reasons I went was to speak about how we point fingers at one another. Yet ultimately, we live in similar circumstances politically. You know, at the, the, the theme of the tour was about how President Obama had been suppressing activism in the United States. And I'm paraphrasing greatly and oversimplify, oversimplifying. 
but right. I spoke in part about the Shack 7 case, which people can look up. It's S-H-A-C, then the number seven, that animal rights case. And then other examples of where activists had been oppressed by gov the government. And when I would start to get nods from the Russian art, uh, audiences, I would flip the script and talk about the way the Russian government and Vladimir Putin were suppressing Pussy Riot, who were a group of activists in Russia. And all of a sudden people were like, oh, wow. So there was, there was a, a, lot of, a lot of finger pointing and finger pointing at ourselves more than anything else. Like, yes, uh, that sounds like something the Russian media would do. But, you know, we just got word this last week that the National Archives released photos where they blurred out anti-Trump messages in photos from the National Archives. It's the same situation. We just speak a different language. Right. Everywhere went in Russia, that was the lesson. Everywhere I've gone in the world, that's the lesson. We just speak different languages. The core fundamental values of our humanity stay relatively consistent. Um, but there was there was one particular night where I during a Q&A after I spoke in Ekaterinburg in Russia, where I was questioned by three guys who most definitely didn't look anything like anybody else in the audience. And they were asking questions like there is information that you are vegan. There is information that you are straight edge. There is information that you are an anarchist. There is information that you support direct action. And it was it was unnerving to the point where I looked at the guy who had booked the tour in the back of the room, like, what do I do? Is this the moment where I start writing the postcard that says, dear mom, in a gulag forever, see a never Greg, um, or what? And he is basically, he was motioning to me to just like, stay the course. It's all right. You know, this will be okay. And at the end of the night, these guys hung around for a long while and then just kind of spirited away into the night. Who knows? My, my Russian friends, in, in reflecting on it over the years, we thought maybe they were, you know, hoping to join the FSB, which is kind of the new KGB. And they were, you know, they wanted to be able to go in. My, this is from my Russian friends uh, suggested this. Maybe they wanted to go in with their however you join, apply or whatever, and be able to say, hey, this American came. We questioned him. You know, we're good for this job. Who knows? That's what the, the greatest suggestion from my Russian friends. But other than that, um, I made it through the tour without um, without any major problems, which I was really happy about. So you you um you did that. Now you're currently working on Bystander. Obviously, the first EP was great. the The next one you put out last year was even better. What's uh, your plans with Bystander coming up in the future? Uh, means a lot that you said. I appreciate it. You know, I was asked to join Bystander. Um, the guys had gotten together and written the music. They evidently made a short list of people who they wanted to sing. And they wrote to me and asked if I wanted to give it a shot. And I wrote lyrics, went up to the studio and actually recorded uh, the, the bystander vocals with Blair Calibaba, who recorded the entire Are These Our Lives trial album. And, um, and, and the bystander guys were happy. And yes. Did you go back I, to John? Uh, we didn't. I was going to you know, I'm single and I thought maybe his wife's available. Um <laughs> So, so uh, after the first Bystander EP came out and we started working on the second one, I just I wanted it to uh, I wanted it to have some some meaning behind it, you know, beyond just uh, the topics of the songs themselves. And to hear that you, you liked it is, is really meaningful. Um, so the plan right now, we're doing a split LP with a band called Old Ghosts. It's going to be four songs from the Bystander show at Fluff Fest in the Czech Republic. One song that's totally unreleased one song that came out on a comp and then a seven seconds cover of in your face that's and awesome then, and then the, the split side is old ghosts we're from the east coast and there's going to be 100 copies of that only in the united states on state of mind records and then 100 copies in europe on goodwill records and all of that is a benefit for 100 to haiti 
and then uh, we'll work on an additional uh, bystander record. And I, I don't know when that'll come out or what the plan will be for recording or writing it, but that's the uh, tentative plan. Is the so I have to ask: Is the initial hi hat start off on where do we go wrong? An homage to reflections. Okay, so you're the first person to mention. <laughs> you're the first person to mention it. And Am I? <laughs> literally, okay. I don't even know if the bystander guys mentioned it, but when we were in, when we got together to work on that, um, it, it it all came together. And when I heard that for the first time, I'm like, should I say something? I'm like, it was not the same. I'm like, trial doesn't own hi hat starts. I'm like, it sounds similar. It's much shorter. Keep it. See if anyone says anything. And I think you might be the first. No one's really mentioned it to me. But I, I love the fact that it's got that connection. I mean, you know, it's it's a it's a vague across two decades connection, but it's kind of it's kind of kind of fun. It makes me smile. Yeah, that's I mean, a, if I heard it. I was like, that's pretty awesome. I hope that's what it was. Uh, well, then then in that case, yes, it was intentional. <laughs> intentional or not, it's a cool connected thread throughout your music career. That's a neat thing to have. Oh, I like that. That's cool. Very cool. I wanted to ask before uh, we uh, shout out some of your links and everything like that. Um, a friend and I drove to Chicago for the Burning Fight book release, and your set there was probably in the top three sets I've seen in my lifetime. Wow. So when you when you started Reflections and you were standing on the uh, the barrier or whatever there, what was going through your head when you saw what was happening in the crowd? Um, it was shocking, overwhelming, stunning, amazing, all of that. I remember starting the set with what my friends have called the math problem <laughs> and uh <laughs> so the math problem for those who haven't seen the video of the set goes like this the show is at the metro the metro was selected because there was no barricade in front of the stage something happened at the metro i don't know what in in the in the lead up to the burning fight show where a, a barricade a barrier was placed in front of the stage and as everyone showed up for burning fight they were bummed there was a barricade in front of the stage Bands all weekend were saying how much they hated the barricade. People were complaining that they hated the barricade. And when I came out to start the set, what I said to the audience was, there are 1,100 of you. There is one barrier. You do the math. Okay, that's, <laughs> that's the math problem, as it's called. So when I said that and we started playing and the place went haywire, I, I just remember being overwhelmed with the power of human beings coming together with focus. Like... It, 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 like, I, I don't mean to say that I was nerding out on stage, but in my head I was. I was like, what could we do if we harnessed this type of energy and focus more often? I, it's astounding, right? I mean, 1,100 varied humans from around the world coming together to go absolutely ballistic uh, towards specific notes of songs, towards specific words of lyrics. It was inspiring more than anything else, like on a personal, political, hardcore level. I just, I still, I can't get over it. I mean, it's I, honestly 11 years now and I, and people still all the time talk about burning fight. And yeah. I look back at that. I look back at your set and between your set and unbroken set, I don't think I've seen a more powerful hardcore set in my entire life. Oh my God. I'm so, I'm so happy to hear that. Cause I remember standing up in the balcony for unbroken and I, I just watched what looked from the balcony, like, waves of human beings just waves of human beings like being like i don't even know just waves of human being I, I, it was just like literally hu humanity had had turned into the seething 
massive just like energy and emotion for Unbroken. It was great. I mean, I, I, I'm so glad that I was standing up there to watch because I got a totally different perspective than had I been in the crowd getting uh, crushed and, and, and jumped on. It was, it was just watching pure human emotional raw energy and mass. Yeah. Unbroken's a very special band. That was very cool. Yeah. They're, I wish they would play again. I'd love to see them again. Um, so we're going to wrap it up. Uh, is there anything else you wanted to specifically talk about or bring up or shout out that you've got going on? Um, you guys are awesome. This was truly like such a great time. And you just had unique questions, a unique flow, unique approach. We debated cereal and soup. <laughs> this is literally one that I'm going to hang up with you guys and then like tell my friends about, and I'm going to call my intensely speaking mom tomorrow morning about it and tell her <laughs> that she's been immortalized in a podcast. But, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, we talked Thank about you. 100 for Haiti. Of course, you're welcome. We talked about 100 for Haiti. Uh, that's a good thing. And, you know, more than anything else, if people want to get in touch, I always welcome people getting in touch with ideas. If you disagree about cereal or soup, <laughs> find me on Instagram. I'm at Greg Benick, G-R-E-G-B-E-N-N-I-C-K. And then, of course, you know, follow 100 for Haiti and all that good stuff. Um, but other than that, I'm just uh, really excited that I got a chance to be on your podcast. Awesome. Greg, this was great. We had a real blast. I'm, I'm so glad, guys. If, uh, if any other questions come up for add-ons, let me know. But other than that, thanks a lot. Yeah, thank you so much. If uh, if anyone wants to check out the links, it's punkrockpariah.com. That's your podcast, right? Yep. Or your radio show. Legacyproject.org and 100forhaiti.org. I think it's, it might be legacyproject.com. But the is thing Tom? is, yeah, the point is the, the site is, is, is pretty beat up at this point. Broken links, all sorts of things. Um, but, uh, if people want to know more about the legacy project, get in touch and I will be redoing that website, uh, sometime this year for sure. I got to do it. All right. Thanks, Greg. Thanks guys. Talk to you Great soon. Great talking to you again, Greg. Goodbye. Yep. Bye guys. How great was old champ? Man, so it was great. Excellent. I thought of when I heard that suicide machine song, I immediately thought of it because I remember seeing them at Old Champ. Wow. Oh, I don't know why I didn't go to that. I think it was them and Stretch Armstrong. That's I remember that show, and I remember being upset I wasn't there. Yeah, I have the set list from that show. I would totally nerd it out. I was pretty young, though. I mean, I was probably like 15 or something. I was already like 17 when I started going to the champ. champ. The first show I saw at Champ was that Kill Your Idols matinee. Oh, with, no. uh, Cranked Up and Those Who Remain. Yeah. I don't know the first one I saw at Champ. I mean, the first one I saw at Champ was their grand opening show, so <laughs> I'm old. Was it a good show? It was a very long day. They had like 30 bands play. It started at like 2 p.m. Jesus. Yeah. I remember when they had a grand opening at the new Champ, and that band Left Alone was supposed to play. Oh. Is that... I was at a show. I don't think it was a grand opening, but... It might have no. It was Phenomenauts. I don't know if Left Alone played that too, and that truck exploded next door. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Were, were you at that show? Yeah. Because no trick, no trigger played, and yeah. then they were like, "Oh, we're really lightheaded," and then they canceled the rest of the show because there were fumes coming in from the garage next door. Yeah, I can't remember what happened. I knew something like got canceled. Um, I think the first show I went to a chant was Strike Anywhere. Nice. I, I think a Global Threat played that too. So, oh man, this isn't going to pertain to a lot of people, 
but years ago, you know that McDonald's on South George Street in York? Yeah. The if you're driving on South George Street towards that McDonald's from the square, the last building on the right, it's like the last building of the row home type buildings. Right. Strike anywhere played the second floor of that. It was like a venue for a minute. Mm-hmm. And they played with From Ash's Rise. That's and awesome. it God. was so great. Like such a great show. And just such a random spot to play. Like there wasn't a stage. They just played on a floor in the corner of this second floor of a building. It yeah, looked like right. it was like a two story like department store type thing at one point. Right. That's awesome. So, weird spots that shows have happened all over this area. Let's now whenever I hear new Code Orange and they're like an industrial band now, I think about Code Orange kids playing the second floor of that radio station in Lancaster when they were like fifteen. Yeah. <laughs> I forgot about that spot. That's where the main drunk guy came from. Yeah. Yeah, Kiki's Playground or Kiki's yeah. Playhouse or something like that. Yeah, whatever that was. Yeah, we had just come back from fest and like we were still in party mode. <laughs> yeah, although Brian Spreen was the one causing the most problems, and he was straight edge and well, was and is straight edge and totally sober. Yeah, but the main drunk guy was loud and obnoxious and yelling things at people. Oh yeah. They forgot sang to... Green Day really <laughs> loud between songs. I remember that. It's like, okay, <laughs> like fuck off. I also remember <laughs> looking through a window upstairs and seeing Raph smoking weed. <laughs> like us yelling was the least of their concerns. Yeah. Weird spot. Yeah. All right, that'll do it for us this week on Two Beats Off. Join us next Monday and every Monday. Episode 3 is going to be with Jack Terrycloth from World Inferno Friendship Society.